this sit. Sit on her foot. Shh. Hello and welcome to Callous and Witness, the podcast devoted to personal explorations at the New York Film Festival. I'm your host, as always, Ryan Swen, and I'm here with our first returning guest and our first guest period, uh, who we last heard on the fourth episode, uh, more than two years ago, I guess, Jeez. which is a very, it feels like, it both feels like it shouldn't be that long, but also in terms of actual experience for obvious reasons, it feels like much longer. It does not feel like that. it should be that long. I Believe me, I would like to go back to two years ago right now. Yes. <laughs> Evan Morgan, film critic, co-host of the currently dormant, sadly dormant, Snakes and Funerals podcast, one of the key inspirations for this podcast, which is, and it's very, I'm very happy to have you back again. Evan. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be the, uh, have the honor of being the first return guest. So. Certainly, and and I hope that there, this will be the first of many returns um, to come, hopefully schedule permitting and all that. And this episode is on the 16th edition of the New York Film Festival in 1978. And obviously, even though it's been less of a gap since our last podcast, which we had with Keith Ulick, which was released back in March, I think, uh, a lot has changed since then. <laughs> it's... I already knew that going into this while I was while we were preparing for this that there would be that there would be a significant change but also another change has happened in the past week past week and a half or so and it is very much the the last episode we actually recorded also in this shadow was sort of what seemed at the time to be a potential shift uh, with the assassination of the Iranian general back in January and then but now We've had two history-altering, current, ongoing crises, crises slash significant events in general, and so we're we're obviously recording this both in quarantine, but also there have been the Black Lives Matter protests against police brutality, institutional racism, both across America and across the globe, and while I obviously don't want to. Why? Uh, why won't belabor the points? Uh, it it did definitely sort of sneak into certainly my uh, my perception of the films. Not necessarily for good or ill. It's just an unavoidable part of just experiencing, just living in this sort of time period. And obviously, quarantine has and the coronavirus pandemic has that effect as well. Uh, I I certainly didn't want that to go unmentioned. Um, but it's. It's a very strange time, and though we're trying to keep the, we'll, we'll I'll keep this as regular as possible. Obviously, that will sneak in. Um, I'm sure the same will, uh, the same can be said uh, for you. Evan. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty damn hard to watch movies right now. I'm not gonna lie, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's everywhere. It's creeping in at uh, all sides, and uh, my consciousness is uh, being barraged at every second. But I'll do my best to talk about these movies from 1978. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and this is sort of a strange and also another unintended sort of intersection with current events. This uh this is as far as I know the only year while I was looking while I was doing research for both the 
master list of New York Film Festival films and also for this for this podcast where there's a strange gap in the New York Times archives where I couldn't really find any coverage of it for some reason that's either not available or or hasn't been uploaded or uh, or for for whatever reason so the sort of customary show notes are a little bit more conjecture than usual so just a mention of that this was um, held as usual at Alice Tully Hall and the selection committee for this time there's a little bit of a shift than uh, compared to usual it's the selection committee was Richard Rod as program director as usual, Richard Corliss, Roger Greenspun, Molly Haskell, Charles Machiner, Tom Luddy as the West Coast consultant, and Mary Mearson as the retrospective consultant. Uh, should be noted definitely that Mearson was the partner, both professionally and, and personally, of Lang Law. And, um, and so it seems like she's acted as a sort of replacement of sorts. And I think also Susan Sontag uh, was among the people who are no longer on the selection committee. And there was one sidebar in the in the festival, uh, actually a pretty intriguing one, called New Currents in Japanese Cinema, which is a collaboration between the Film Society and Japan Society, showcasing five independent Japanese films in the afternoons. And these films were... Uh, Pastoral Hide and Seek by Shuji Teriyama, The Pornographers by Shohei Imamura, Preparation for the Festival by Kazuo Kuroki, The Skies of May by Shinsuke Ogawa, and Third Base by Yoichi Higashi. Uh, obviously, because as I said before, there's no New York Times coverage of this. I'm not exactly sure why they chose this particular one, but you know, interesting nonetheless. And what did you think of this sort of slate of films? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know that it's my uh, favorite slate of films that you guys have covered on this, uh, on this show. Uh, I don't know, like I, because there's no contextual material like that your show notes mm -hmm. would normally provide me, it is hard to say why this is the case, but I don't know if this has more first time filmmakers and more new to like NIF filmmakers than prior, um, uh, festivals, but it does seem a little bit like retrospectively they're sort of trying to find some new voices that might be like shaping cinema in the future and I think they mostly whiffed <laughs> and, and picked the wrong people like, uh, you know, I mean Earl Morris had his debut here, which we'll get mm -hmm. to, and clearly is a major figure, but there's a lot of people smattered in here who didn't really seem to go on to do a whole lot of interest. And then I think the more familiar names in here uh, are turning in work that is interesting to me, but for the most part, not among mm -hmm. my favorites. So um, I wouldn't say this is the strongest yeah. here. But. Yeah, I think there is maybe a little bit more. There's some more one-time directors. I, I think that forms maybe, if not quite half the slate, then than nearly half, which is a little bit more than usual. And I do think that this is, for me, the weakest year, the weakest festival that um, of these first 16. I can't exactly explain why, and I do think that there are some very, very towering films, uh, of course, that we'll get to. But I think maybe a key part coloring my perception of it is just this stretch sort of in the towards the beginning middle of the festival where there literally are no 
films that I especially <laughs> like or that, that I like enough to really cement them in, in place, which is, and I think the festival does sort of make up for it towards the end, but it is still strange that there is this, and I haven't really experienced anything like that in the, in the festival. So it is a strange, like a, a strange weight in the middle of it that sort of drags the rest of the festival down. And there, as I said before, there are some very wonderful films in here and it is, um, but it, it is, it does feel like combined with the last festival, which also was not among my favorites. So I think it was strong in its own way. I wonder if this is sort of like a transitional period between the seventies and eighties in a way that doesn't, that makes the films a, a little bit weaker. I think like, I, I'm not exactly sure how to characterize it, but I think it's something along those lines. I mean, it seems to me a little bit that you've got some filmmakers who are doing some of their best work and or, or among their strongest work to date in 78 who like aren't in the mm -hmm. festival who then show up later. Like uh, Ruiz uh, made the hypothesis of the stolen, stolen painting this year. And I think it's not what until 1985 or whatever, mm -hmm. when uh, three crowns of the sailor shows up that Ruiz appears in right. NIF and like there's a, and uh, Oliveira's doomed love mm -hmm. came out this year um, it just seems like there are maybe other currents that they weren't really yet tapped into, which when I look back on 78 are the places that I find most interesting mm -hmm. that aren't really represented here. But Yeah. Yeah, that seems fair. Um, that's a good time to get into the sort of emissions, the lengthy uh, emissions list. So for the, from Cannes, the Palm d'Or went to, and the, and the, prize of the ecumenical jury went to the tree of wooden clogs by Armando Olmi. Uh, Grand Prix was shared with another with a film in here but it was also went to Bye Bye Monkey by Marco Ferrari. Best director went to Oshima's Empire of Passion. Best actress was also shared with a film in this slate but also went to Joe Clayburg and An Unmarried Woman by Paul Mazursky. Actor went to John Voight and Hal Ashby's Coming Home. The camera door, for some reason, went to Robert M. Young, who made Alan Brista, even though, as we covered last time, Short Eyes seems to have been his actual debut. I don't know why that went to it. And the Fit Pressy went to Man of Marble by uh, by Andre Vida. Also in the competition was Blindfolded Eyes by Carlos Sara, Eke Bombo by Nani Moretti, who obviously will be in a number, will have a number of films in the in NIF later on. Also, Spiral by Christoph Zanussi was a film in this slate. Uh, a, very, a Very Moral Night by Carol Imach, and Who Will Stop the Rain by C Carol Rees. In Uncertain Regard was Hiller Film from, from Germany by Hans-Jürgen Sieberberg, and Coco A Talking Gorilla by Barbie Schroeder. And Out of Competition was The Last Waltz by Martin Scorsese, who has a film in here. Uh, don't know why, uh, but it's, it's strange that that one uh, wasn't in this one, but this one, but the one that he has in this one was. Uh, in Critics Week, there was Jubilee by Derek Jarman, and in Directors for Night, there was Fine Manners, a yeah. favorite of yours, yeah. by uh, yeah, there's, yeah, no diagonal <laughs> representation in the yes. in the NIF, as far as I'm aware, unfortunately. Yeah, so. as far as, yes, uh, same. Um, Girlfriends by Claudia Vial, Inshan by Lino Bracco, which appears later on in the festival. Uh, a Summer Rain and A Summer Rain by Carlos Diquez. In Berlin, a, a strangely sort of unknown slate, I think, but some of the more notable ones were the Golden Bear was shared between two 
two films, What Max Said by Emilio Martinez Lazaro and Las Trucas by Jose Luis Garcia Sanchez. And then there was also a very large omnibus called Germany in Autumn and A Night Full of Rain by Lena Wertmuller and some other assorted absences uh, for one reason or another. Days of Heaven, Autumn Sonata, Killer of Sheep, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, The Driver, Blue Collar, Le Rendezvous Diana, The Hypothesis of the Stolen Painting, Remember My Name, Doomed Love, Always for Pleasure, The Whole Shooting Match, Freiras, Flames, uh, another yes. few years, and The Suspended Vocation. Also another sort of <laughs> diagonal-ish film, so. Yes, exactly. And, uh, for, and the slate from New Director's New Films was The Baker's Bread by Irvin Koish, The Bus by Bay Oaken, Chukiago by Antonio Iguino, The Far Road by Sechiko Hidari, Foul Play by Marek Pivowski, Jane is Jane Forever by Walter Bachmeyer, The Main Actor by Reinhard Hoff, Mother and Daughter by Giovanna Gagliardo, North Star Mark de Suvero by Francois de Menil, Paradiso by Christian Bricot, Paul Palandre by Reinhard Hoff, Roger Corman, Hollywood's Wild Angel by Christian Blackwood, who has a film later on the festival, Scenic Route by Mark Rappaport, which is, who has a number of films later on, To an Unknown God by Jaime Chavari, and Tori Bella by Thomas Harlan. So definitely some, as we mentioned before, some notable films, especially European films in the, in the uh, emissions, though, I can't say most of them would be sort of on the on the NIF radar, uh, though. So, so it's it's sort of strange that this is the slate that 1978 resulted in. But also because of quarantine, I had a lot of opportunity to catch up with some of the films. At, like some of the films actually weren't available also before. Um, so from the eighth festival, I saw Lang Luan, uh, directed by Ayla Hirshan and Roberto Guerra. The, sort of documentary of of Henri Lenoir and actually it's a, it was a it's all in English uh for some reason and it's sort of it doesn't really necessarily uh cohere all that well because it's sort of trying to jump between Lenoir sort of pottering around Paris pointing out different uh landmarks and like places where the the Cinematheque Francaise was before it settled in its original place and like that's very pleasurable and then there are also these interviews with very random people like Jean Moreau or uh, Simon Sinere or Kenneth Anger of all people. And like some of them, like it's sort of debatable. I can't, I can't exactly pinpoint to what extent they had really an involvement with the Cinematheque itself or Thling Loire, even though they all speak very highly of him, but it's fairly pleasurable. And then from the 12th festival, I saw UD, which was the, the fourth, it was technically the first, but the only unavailable one at the time, um, short in the in the roots section of documentaries about uh, of, of documentaries, and I, I thought it was actually it was pretty wonderful and like a very sort of grounded portrait of of the pers- of the eponymous subject. But I, I think she's a very welcome presence, and the way that it b- bounces b- between interviews between an interview with her and sort of like the her on the street in New York I think it, it was just it, it's just very well done I thought and then uh, to fill in the sort of fast bender gap from 
the fourteenth festival I saw Fear of Fear, uh, which is which was a I think one of the ones that he made for TV, and I think maybe not as successful as the other ones so far, uh, other Fassbender so far, but I think and is very much invested in the sort of mania that the that the the protagonist uh, housewife feels like that that she slowly develops. And I think it's maybe not as I think that the sort of control of Fassbender's sort of direction doesn't necessarily um, mesh as well as it could, but I think it, it is still, um, it still has a lot of his, uh, uh, I think I think, I think so it's just really well composed and um, strong in its own way. And then some rewatches that I had, uh, I rewatched Band of Outsiders, which I did like a little bit more than, than the time I watched for the second festival and two English girls, which I actually recorded a podcast on um, the film stage show intermission podcast. Oh yeah. The film stage uh, conversation on two English girls is very good. I would highly recommend everyone listen to that. Thank you. Thank you very much. And the movie itself is, is wonderful as, uh, as we'll talk about with uh, the green room. uh, I've had to change my tune on Truffaut a little bit and uh, (laughs) two English girls that I watched earlier this year is far and away the best movie I've seen this year. I, I'm in love with that movie, so. Absolutely, yes. Should note before that, and this is probably something that will recur for, for a number of, for many other festivals to come. But because uh, obviously I have for my guests that they do not have to subject themselves <laughs> to every single film. Uh, so I so it's sort of as long as they've seen the majority, uh, it's I'm totally fine with it and. Evan has seen definitely more than the majority, but there are a number of films, especially in that sort of stretch that I mentioned uh, that he's not seen. So you will be hearing my voice <laughs> even more than usual. Good so, luck. Yes, good luck. Uh, good luck listening to this. Uh, but I can assure you there are are some very great films that we will discuss. Uh, so shall we dive in? Yeah, let's do it. night film for the 78 festival was another in the strange sort of series of films by Robert Altman that are not really recognized among his most famous but which happen to be the ones that form the bulk of his sort of NIF representation uh, for some reason uh, it's a wedding by if, um, it's a wedding and this is sort of very much in the sort of Altman, basically what you'd expect from an Altman film, sort of a large sort of ensemble with many, many, with a, with a mixture, with it certainly a mixed cast in the sense of people who are well-known and, and the sort of emphasis on each. 
and it's it takes place over a 12-hour period or so and and it's very much it very much lives and dies and does often does both on the <laughs> sort of uh the sort of way in which the characters ping pong off of each other and the sort of culture clashes in a certain sense but also just you know the complexities of their relationships and of the sort of milieus in which they're placed in and this one is basically as you might expect revolves around the wedding between the wedding that joins these two um, disparate families together these sprawling disparate families along with their friends and whatnot uh the it is it's between dino corelli who's played by desi arnaz jr and who's basically the the son of this who's part of this this rich chicago family and who may or may who has some connection to the to italian crime because of the because of the father who married in the father of dino and muffin brenner played by amy striker who's part of this kentucky southern uh also another rich family and the the film for the most part takes place on the state of the of the Corellis. And basically the it it's it's very much the sort of kind of film where it's there's like twenty too many characters and as a result it's just sometimes it is actually quite funny. I think and I think by the end it sort of wraps everything up together and into this sort of into a cohesive whole. It's very much about the sort of despondency that these sort of gatherings can bring and and all of the ugly truths that, that get unearthed and but at the same time it is just over two hours but a lot to take uh, nevertheless and it is it is just funny just to see exactly which parts really sing out i think that the perhaps the the best gag or the best trick that Altman pulls is bringing in Lillian Gish to play uh, the sort of the grandmother of Dino and within the first 20 minutes even though she she's she's waiting at home waiting for the wedding party to, to arrive because it's being held up by a very a very old and doddering bishop uh, who's overseeing the wedding the ceremony and the and Lillian Gish she's just bedridden she seems but she seems very active and seems very alive and then right before the wedding party arrives she dies and she spends uh, and she spends probably 10 scenes thereafter just acting as a corpse <laughs> and and at, at one point the and and the essentially the final monologue or this final scene is given over her over her corpse in in very moody lighting for whatever I'm sorry, reason the corpse uh, the corpse gives a dialogue see no no oh. no <laughs> no someone gives a, a oh, monologue okay. to the corpse but it's just there is just this strange like he, he seems to bring altman seems to bring in a lot of these characters to do not very much and but it is i think some of the most memorable memorable parts for me simply because i know some a lot of some of the actors much much better than the others it is just strange that he often gives some of them less involved parts to some of the more well-known actors. Uh, Geraldine Chaplin plays this, essentially the the wedding planner, and so she spends much of the the um, 
the film just running around trying to make sure everything's going smoothly, even though many things do not. I think at one point there is this sort of tornado and with it brings a th- thunderstorm that shuts out the lights and forces everyone down into the basement, which, and it is just very much based on all of these different little coincidences, all these little unintended parallels or all these parallels that are created just between the um, juxtaposition of two different storylines. And it's just sort of hard to encapsulate because it is intended to be, even though it has this very linear progression and one of the more, and probably the most significant subplot is where the groom is suspected of having f- fathered or impregnated the bride's sister, who's played by Maria Farrell, and she has literally, she only has one scene in which she uh, speaks, and otherwise she seems to not speak it at all for some reason I don't know exactly why. But also, but then it's revealed that she has because he's a he's part of a military academy. It's revealed that she probably that she slept with pretty much the entire barracks. So it is. So you have that as the sort of thing that most unites the two um, the two families. But otherwise, it is very much breaking up the people into different, just pairing them off frequently as just two people together in the midst of this large crowd. And so it's 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 a very stuffed film, certainly. It sounds excruciating. Uh, the, the, <laughs> this kind of like Altman mode is just anathema to me now. I was like mm-hmm. a huge Altman fan when I was in my teens. I had a Shortcuts poster above my bed <laughs> uh, in high school. Uh, and I just can't with Altman anymore, especially, and I never, I've never seen a wedding. It's one of the ones I haven't seen, but uh, when he's doing this like really loose, uh, thing where he was just like smoking a lot of pot and coming up with the shit on the set, I just, (laughs) I can't do it anymore. If he's, if he's got like a really clear narrative, like the long goodbye or McCabe and Mrs. Miller and all of his kind of dillying around the edges is just sort of like enriching the the central narrative by making the periphery more unusual and, and unexpected like i can still agree with those movies but these ones that are just like largely improvised pot fueled actor mm-hmm. exercises are just no thank you yeah i mean yeah it is definitely like a, i i have a great great fondness for nashville and i know that you're not very hot on it uh but it is definitely the case where something like that has of it has a clear sense of its place whereas and a, a very clear sense of what each of these characters different aspirations are and you know actually differentiating them in in ways and not and whereas this i actually could not figure out whether it was in the whether it was the chicago family's house mm. or the or the southern family's house for the longest time i i don't know exactly why but it just it's it's just forcing all these different characters together and then trying to make something coherent out of them. And I don't think it necessarily it's necessarily coherent in that sense. I think that some of the different plot strands are quite effective, and it's just fun to see. For instance, the elderly bishop sort of uh, just making fun of Lillian Gish while he and he doesn't realize that she's dead she he just thinks that she's sleeping so just things like that and him forming this strange bond with the uh head of security there um there there are just moments that and and also the these strange pair of of jilted lovers or like the lovers of the ex-lovers of the of the bride and groom 
and when they arrive, they just immediately start kissing the bride and groom. Uh, you know, like, just like moments like that, like it in, it throws in a sort of disruptive element, I guess, a disruptive element to those more gen- genteel, more like overtly Altman's version of Screwball, I guess, um, that like that's sort of welcome. But I don't think that there's enough of that. And I think that a, a lot of it is maybe just like sort of recedes into this sort of mass. But I think there's, there, there are good moments about it, certainly. And there are good elements and good sor- sort of storylines. It's just I don't think it necessarily uh, does it, it. It doesn't really reach anything that is especially notable um, in the sum total. So, uh, and I, I don't know why that, why this Faultman films uh, made it in. Maybe it just happened to be a matter of, of timing, but uh, that's that's how it is. That's how it is with Altman for some reason for Niff. The next film is a retrospective of is is a retrospective title, and this is actually one that we've discussed <laughs> on recording before. But we've the first discussed. time I've ever discussed a movie on a podcast twice but yeah <laughs> it's certainly but i think it's certainly a, a very deserving one I, and a favorite of both of ours this is spies by fritz lang would you like to introduce this actually uh sure i mean i don't know what else to say except it's one of the greatest movies ever uh it's been too long since i've seen it to directly recall the plot but the plot is is not really what's exciting to me here about this movie uh i think it's sort of the apotheosis of lang's silent period style i think he sort of was moving throughout the silent period especially towards the end uh towards this kind of hyper like technological um kind of cinema where basically the human person is increasingly irrelevant and the movie itself is sort of this like autonomous surveillance apparatus and uh, I think Spies in some ways is maybe the the most extreme example. I guess I waffle a little bit back and forth on whether or not the, the kind of teleological endpoint of this trajectory is Spies or the Testament of Dr. Mabusa. But nevertheless, uh, it is just an incredible contraption that seems to kind of have its own uh, like energy that it creates as it moves along. And I think it contains some of Lang's... Uh, most like striking compositions um it's a movie that i don't think the camera moves like once in the entire movie if i recall correctly (laughs) or maybe it does like a a couple times um but yet which is like the most propulsive thing you could pretty much imagine i mean it is like two two and a half hours or something it just flies by Mm -hmm. and i mean a lot of that has to do with i think the way that lang's uh lang has such a, a strong sense of how like the geometries between two shots like relate to each other. And I think his cutting is never stronger than it is here. I mean, I think the, the opening sequence, which Ryan, you actually just wrote a piece for movie on, um, mm-hmm. I, I believe, uh, like is just a furious, uh, sequence of information being transmitted, uh, across this society the film takes place in and i don't know i i just find it an incredibly exciting movie and i think it it continues to grow in my estimation among lang's works and lang is someone who is very dear to me uh and i i just am increasingly interested in the way that that lang sort of 
attempts to create this like totally mechanized, uh, autonomous, like anti-human kind of cinema uh, in the silent period, and then is sort of thwarted in a sense by uh, his move to Hollywood, where the the demands of of sort of like psychological realism suddenly are imposed on his film. Uh, because here you obviously have the the plot of Agent Thirty. 326, whatever his name is, the, the agent, yeah, yeah, who's who's um, uh, attempting to, I guess, like infiltrate or discover the nature of this uh, opaque conspiratorial uh, kind of operation run by uh, the uh, Road of Clan Ro- Roga uh, figure, Hagi, uh, who sits behind a bank uh, and basically seems to control the entirety of Weimar society with a switchboard <laughs> and a goatee. Um, and, uh, agent 326 is like trying to infiltrate and, and there's, uh, a lot of, uh, I guess like narrative, uh, incident around him and the Russian woman who works for Hagi who fall in love, but it all is, it feels very incidental when compared to the, the way that Lang is sort of constructed in itself and, and conceiving of the, like the space of, of Hagi's like secret lair and things like that. I mean, it's just. Lang's visual sense is just like on fire in this film, and that's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is very much nineteen twenty-eight. So right at the end of his silent era, I think only "Woman in the Moon" is the is the other one uh, is the is the last one. But this is this very much feels like a elaboration. I I compared it when we last spoke when we were last recorded on it as sort of like a essentially trying to take all of the instant of a full serial of a full silent film serial and compressing it down to two and a half hours. And I still think it is, it functions like that. But I think as you said, the it's strange because for me, the plot is both vital to my adoration of it, but also sort of totally incidental because it's more about what the plot, how the plot can bring about Mm -hmm. images can bring about these sort of moments. And I, and, and thinking back about it, it's just sort of, it's very much about how it's centered on Hagi, even though the Hagi doesn't appear in it as much as Agent 326, as, as far as I'm aware. It is very much about how he picks up, how Hagi picks up drop schemes and just brings them, brings them sort of in a revolving manner and returning to them and, 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 and then taking another and then returning once again. And, in that, I think that it, he's able to, Ling is able to both keep it very propulsive, keeping it moving forward in three or four different tributaries at once, while also ensuring a ins- ensuring a sort of a progression, a, a sense of progression towards an ultimate goal um, that's for for each of them. And I think that his sort of balancing of that is really crucial, and it is definitely uh, that the one the scheme that's the most that's the most prominent but also i think provides some of the most evocative moments is this this treaty between japan and i think it's actually specified as i don't i don't, I don't think the, the, the yeah, country's the country is never really yeah. identified i mean i think the signifiers yeah. are like very clear to any audience that right. would have seen it in germany at the time that it's standing in mm-hmm. for like contemporary weimar society but yeah it's never mentioned that it takes place in a specific city or, or country right and which is which is fascinating because it brings in say the like it brings in these very clear signifiers of russia or japan 
but at the same time, they sort of are, they form, like, maybe it's more of a sense of the, I guess, I guess the exotic or the sort of the disruptor towards the, towards the film's ultimate milieu of the, of high class society. And it's very much dedicated to cataloging the, the sort of signifiers of, of high society and, and the sort of decadence that both both the the general people, but also the or the general people in this class, but also Hagi to a large extent um, are involved in, and the the clearest image of that is this from I think it's basically from uh, the camera suspended in in the air and it's looking down on this 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 boxing match that that's happening in this um, in this large ring, and then right after it ends, the the band strikes up and the and a, enormous uh, amount of couples come out and start dancing and this is all captured in one shot and it's very much about the juxtaposition between violence and pleasure that and obviously the combination that both of them can bring um that runs throughout this film and i think is what makes it so 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 pleasure both, both so pleasurable but also so sobering and strange and unfamiliar and i think that's a lot of what draws me to to the film yeah, I want to think what you said about the fact that it's basically like a, a longer form, early silent serial sort of compressed into this short time frame is what gives it that kind of narrative pleasure. Because it's not, I guess to be clear, it's not that I think the plot is something that one could jettison from this film. And I don't even think that Lang is capable of conceiving. Well, how it's basically just Lang is not someone who I think thinks theoretically himself like he he does not as a filmmaker set out to make a film like i described this kind of autonomous surveillance apparatus like he would never conceive of his own work that way because in his deep in his bones are the the like traditions tropes and beats of the kind of late 19th century serial and he he needs those as scaffolding on which uh, to hang his ideas, or, or that maybe even gives him too much agency. He he needs the the narrative to, as I think you kind of put it, like uh, allow the images that actually contain the things that I think his like deeper consciousness are interested in. It, it needs the narrative to like make those things arise. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, the narrative is is elemental and on, on its own terms sort of uninteresting. But I would argue that's often the case for this kind of material anyways and it's all about the way in which um that ignites lang's uh other uh maybe less uh clear even to himself interests mm -hmm. yeah and it's very much encapsulated like the, the entire film is, is encapsulated in the opening sequence the opening three minutes or so which is which i would certainly put among i think i think it might be like the great the greatest sequence in film for me, and I think I think it just encapsulates every every single thing that I love about film and about the way it's able to immediately establish this sort of it's 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 its style, its its point of view, its sort of intention, and it is very it's just the way it moves from these very micro actions to this very macro sort of. Um, these very macro consequences and how 
communication is a, a vital part of establishing this and 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 facilitating this sort of communication and how Lang is able to conjure those up by the simplest of means by just shooting a telephone receiver and having the words sort of emanate out of it in in this very in this very uh, prime uh, very basic fashion but nevertheless which carries its meaning or the or my favorite shot in it and my favorite one of my favorite shots period of a motorcycle very obviously suspended in the air or and like the the and the camera basically below where the where the wheel would meet the road and yet and so you know it's a it's the the motorcycle is not actually moving but what matters is the sort of movement that's stimulated by the the winds rushing by the the fog that's in the air and the sort of mad grin that the that the that the anonymous criminal has on his face it's just all of that encapsulates this the ruthlessness the 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 sense that this is a, another that these people are operating in their own sort of world their own sort of sealed world which nevertheless can like has very grave consequence, consequences for the for for our world basically it is it, it's just like it moves between those two realms so fluidly and so sinister with such sinister intent that it becomes intoxicating and that's very clear in this sequence in the in the film at large it, it is also a movie that uh like not to be too cute about it but you know given the sense that society that we live in currently is sort of fraying uh seems a movie that uh, I find myself thinking about more often than I might in uh, a time and place in history that felt a little bit more stable than our own. I mean, I think mm -hmm. it is um, one of the films that I think captures most clearly this feeling, I think, of like living through like a, a moment of historical convulsion. Uh, and mm -hmm. I don't know that that was something that I really, until recently, I guess knew how to, or I guess I wouldn't have recognized that. I think so viscerally in the film, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, mm. It's always been a movie that seemed to me directly speaking to the audience at the time that was living through an incredibly convulsive decade in German history. I mean, I think of the last image of the film frequently, which is mm. Hagi shooting himself on stage and basically he is giving this performance where his suicide is understood by the audience to be part of the performance, but by mm -hmm. the audience is understood to be an actual suicide. Uh, and uh, the audience all stands up and, and claps, if I recall. And then the curtain yes. just like slams down and the movie ends yes. like in a second. And there's just something so... Um, it, the movie feels like it's sort of like sounding an alarm in a way and not about like any particular social issue or anything, but just like blaring the sirens that like things are spinning about and about to collapse. And um, mm -hmm. I guess I, I can understand that feeling more than I maybe yeah. did last time I saw Spies. So. Right. And it's, and it is definitely, I think this time, especially I understood more the sort of role that this, that the, that the agents have, like the individual agents have, and the sort of what might be a sort of maybe overemphasis on Agent Three Two Six 
and like compared like even though and I think that maybe he's uh, the really the moment that really crystallized it is him basically going into he he's he he's disguised as a homeless person and then he sneaks into a hotel and then emerges a few minutes later just like you know completely immaculate in a in a suit and very much appearing to be a part of high society so i think it is just in a similar way to hagi and of course his incredible incredible uh the incredible moment where he just stands up from his wheelchair uh it is like we're all about the sort of guises that people can carry and and how each person knows a number of other people's pressure points the clearest example i think is with the the japanese head of security masamoto um who does take up actually a fairly significant portion of screen time and just the way that his his morality like even he even though he seems to be supremely dedicated his morality can be corrupted can be sort of twisted in a in a very particular way that makes his schemes and his partially successful attempts to outwit Hagi all come to naught I think it's just it really encapsulates the hopelessness in a certain way or the sort of ultimate uh, manipulation or potential manipulation of pretty much everyone and I think that's what really is haunting in its own way and the and like you said the the last scene it both ends it, it both serves as this very concrete very final ends but also there's a sense that there is so much else out there like yeah i mean um, i don't i don't yeah. think you get the sense in the end that just because hoggy has killed himself that this like system that he stands in for ceases to to operate and run mm-hmm. i mean i think again the whole structure of the movie in its very like formal structure suggests that this contraption need not have human inputs and mm-hmm. hoggy is just like a manifestation of the machine's internal logic and the machine can can do without him and he's extinguished mm-hmm. at the end and I, I don't think uh, any reasonable reader of the film uh, can walk away feeling like well, you know, this conspiracy has been resolved and, you know, life is, is going to return back to normal. I mean, I think the, the feeling is this this machine is about to, to chew through everyone. And, you know, it just happens that the, the first person that it, it chews and spits out is um, sort of the person that was operating it himself. But mm-hmm. um, it's coming for every other person in that audience is, I think, right. pretty clearly what, what the propulsive energy of the film suggests to me. Mm-hmm. And it's very key that the sort of the autom the uh, the automotive um, aspects to it, the sort of the the technologies that are in place are both very bare bones. Like it's just a slot in hockey's desk that pops up a newspaper or a telegram or something like that, or like a screen, a very simple screen that displays one word at a time on the wall. It's it's both very simple, but also because Lang actually doesn't spend much time at all in the secret headquarters behind the bank. It's just shots of staircases or rooms that are labeled with American sector or something like that. It is both very concrete, but also unable to be really captured 
because Lang chooses um, is very careful about what he chooses or or chooses not to show. Yeah, I mean, I think very, yeah. I think Lang never gets out ahead of himself, except in the cases where he's obviously trying to do so, like Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But even in something like Women on the Moon, I mean, he rarely gets out too far ahead of I think where like the technology reasonably is. Like he's not inventing you know insane technologies in these films like he's he's basically leveraging what are i think or would have been pretty plausible technologies for the time and place in which the film occurs and so yeah i mean the the like the simplicity of them is actually more frightening because it doesn't require the suspension of disbelief to say okay well hoggy has this you know vast technological capacity that is like inconceivable like he has basically Mm -hmm. the powers of the state and Mm -hmm. um he need not have more than that the powers of the state Mm -hmm. uh the surveillance powers of the state as they exist at that time are sufficient and i think that's one thing you see i mean throughout lang until you get to the last his final film the thousand of dr marbusa which takes up that very idea and is uh adapting it to the specific you know technological capacity of the state um the surveillance state very specifically in in Mm -hmm. the 1960s um Mm -hmm. in in germany and so yeah i mean i I think it would be it would the film would be less effective if lang were imagining Mm -hmm. uh fanciful technologies by which hoggy administered his power but he doesn't need to because he can just suggest that he basically has consolidated all of the the currently available tech and that's sufficient for him to exercise his control and therefore much more frightening Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely it it is just very economical in its own way while also being willing to go extravagant extravagant and get just these very these insane images like masamoto looking at the the three ghosts of his of his fallen uh his fallen compatriots just just while the japanese flag is projected in the background uh, it, it, like one, one of your favorite shots just a very simple one of the of the russian spy shoot, shooting a gun mm-hmm. but like holding it in such a casual manner that it becomes this sort of totemic Totemic yeah, image. I mean, I, that's the image that always comes to me when I when I think of the movie. And I, I think, as I said on our last discussion on uh, Snakes and Funerals, uh, if anyone wants to go listen. Uh, it's, it's great. Was that basically it's a film that is, it's not literally the case. It's composed entirely of insert shots. But, like, you could basically <laughs> cut out all the things that aren't insert shots. And you'd probably lose, like, ten minutes of the, the runtime. Like, the entire movie. And Lang loves insert shots of hands and objects and and things mm-hmm. like that. And it, it seems to me the most Baroque example of that. And, and so mm-hmm. that, that image of uh, the Russian spy, um, which is, that's how we meet her in the film. I mean, what a ridiculous introduction. Yeah. Like we don't, before we see her face or anything else, we just see her hand uh, like abstracted um, in this sort of like seductive pose uh, with, is she holding a cigarette too, or is it just the gun? I can't remember, but I think she's like maybe a cigarette case. Or yeah, something. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's holding yeah. a cigarette case, and her yeah. hand is sort of like draped over her wrist. Like, I mean, <laughs> it, it's this extremely erotic image, you know. And then she's like holding this little Derringer pistol, and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it just seems to me uh, quite a clear example of the way that Lang like thinks about his people. Like, this woman is not a person; mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. hands that hold a gun, and like whatever yes. other psychology we you know have to 
endure about her later to like make the plot work fine but she's basically just mm-hmm. like you know a vector through which um you know this gun and cigarette case are held <laughs> yeah absolutely and it, it's just a film like suffused with this sort of dread that lang is the master of um yeah I, obviously we we discussed it further on another episode and you can on on snakes and funerals the spies episode and you can listen to that as well but yes one of the greatest films without question the next film is a canadian film a, a, also a feature debut by zale dalen this is skip tracer uh, and it's sort of it's a, i guess the most obvious comparison is to something like it's like a very a hyper low key repo man basically because it surround it centers on a a a repo man a John Collins played by David Peterson and it's and sort of his it's it it's taking place like he's very much this sort of hyper efficient repo man just constantly bearing down on, on his clients on and on the and trying to trying to nail down every single case so that he can win uh, man of the year uh, three times in a row and this takes place during his his campaign to to get the get it the fourth time i believe and it's very much the the, the narrative it's it, even though it has this very clear progression and it ends as you might expect with him quitting his job uh deleting all the records after his after the the most recurring client uh com- kills himself and his family um, out of the sort of stress of uh, of the the stress it's the actual moments the actual sort of progression aren't necessarily hammered home all that much um, which is which is sort of a strange which is sort of a strange um, strange juxtaposition and it's very much it's it's sort of hard to pin down in that case because it, it is all about I think some some of the moments are that it's at its best when it is about him just sort of being an automaton and being a sort of a an employee and doing nothing doing nothing more and nothing less like uh, there are moments like say where he confronts a construction worker who tries to hide in one of those you know long metal tubes that you see in on construction sites but then he just starts banging on it with a wrench uh like just to intimidate the guy and it's and then there are some other parts like the sort of recurring storyline he has where with a young employee who's trying to learn the ropes room by tagging along um and and he actually gets stabbed at around the halfway point even and it's not really revealed later on who actually stabbed him but he seems it's sort of smoothed over and he just goes on with his work after recovering and so it's very it's just extremely low-key which is which has its certain pleasures and has its certain um interests and but at the same time it doesn't really feel like it amounts to too much um like like the sort of the, the sort of linear progression of it is ultimately kind of what undoes it because it is it tries to make something it, it tries to make his the progression of his of his psychology this end point but then the sort of middle doesn't really um coalesce into something that feels like it's driving towards the towards the ending so it's 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 strange in that in that sense but there are but i think it, it is certainly of interest strange pick 
for the festival. I mean, I've never heard of this or this. Yeah. I mean, this is his first. Do you say it was a first film? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Actually, shot shot on sixteen mm. millimeter, and it's it's very much. It, it it very much knows its constraints, and um, and it has this very very dry sense of comedy to it uh, at certain points, which just because I think that Peterson's performance does a lot for that, simply because he is very so very solid, so very sarcastic at times, but in the sort of bone dry sarca- sarcasm that uh, can often be very fun to watch. Uh, also, a very synth heavy <clears throat> score. It, it, it's very much like of its sort of particular time and place. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting though. I, I don't know if it's necessarily all that successful. The next film is uh, Francois Truffaut's uh, The Green Room, which is uh, based on uh, two or three uh, Henry James uh, stories that he kind of sutures together into one narrative. Um, uh, my experience with the film was a little bit one of conversion. I'm not, or at least had not previously been uh, the biggest uh, Truffaut fan. Uh, the more canonical works for him, Jules and Jim, The 400 Blows, I don't know, what else? Uh, Shoot the Piano Player, those... Day for Night. Day for Night. Oh, Day for Night, yeah. Like, uh, they just don't really do it for me. Uh, and I think there's a kind of... There's like a false for me note of like youthful joie de vivre in some of those films, mm-hmm. especially the early ones um, that I just don't really buy. And one thing I like about the green room is that it is like absolutely funereal and death obsessed <laughs> and like none of the kind of attempts to capture some, you know, ebullient sixties, uh, youth culture or even in day for night which is clearly the the film of an older man this kind of i don't know uh the very like free atmosphere of of the film set like it just rings false to me but here he is uh true himself plays a man who is just obsessed with with death basically um and with Mm -hmm. sort of this like almost necrophilic need to um, to live with death and to reject life, to reject all of the things that I think in Truffaut's other films, his characters are very loudly like proclaiming to enjoy um, and to live mm-hmm. in this like crepuscular, dark, like dank house that eventually is like partly burned down he's like literally living mm-hmm. in the like ashes of the burnt room <laughs> that his what is it his, like his wife's photo is in the room yeah and yeah, he's like yeah. it's like his um uh like uh what, what's the word i'm looking for like altar to his sort of dead mm-hmm. wife and it, it partly burns and he's like literally sitting in the in the ashes and and won't come out and mm-hmm. um for me Truffaut engaging with these uh these much bleaker emotions was much more effective than the Truffaut that I guess I had constructed in my mind, um, who was dealing with, I think things that are sort of contrapuntal to, to these emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's basically his vertigo, I think as we'll probably talk about. Mm-hmm. And I, I think clearly it's a film that Truffaut conceived of as, 
uh, a sort of response to the morbid, the more morbid uh, strains in in Hitchcock's work, which is obviously important to him. And though it it takes it into a very different direction in terms of genre, uh, I think the the sense of this kind of death fixation is just really strong in the film and and kind of hard to shake for me. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's it's very much. Um... It's it's morbid, but I think um, equally important. It's very sober in the way it carries itself out. It's very much in the sort of more classical, uh, like the more classical direction of his of his seventies work, and it's very much interfacing with all of these. It, it's again like his like some of his best work. It's set in um, a very specific time. It takes place ten years after the end of World War One, and you see. Uh, under the opening credits, this sort of footage, World War One footage, and him, and and the face and his face, and I don't know if we mentioned Truffaut plays the main character, uh, Julian Deven, and it it shows him as a soldier just in there, all in black and white, and the sort of introduction of that, the introduction of the of his sort of profound melancholy uh, that results from it. And from the death of his wife, right before the, right before, right right after. Yeah, I think he uh, comes back from the um, war. He basically escapes this like Mm -hmm. death, and then like if I recall Mm -hmm. correctly, his wife pretty much dies like immediately upon his return. Almost as if he. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. like there's sort of a an implicit sense that he like is the the bearer of death. I I think, and part of his Mm -hmm. fixation Mm -hmm. is a kind of. unannunciated guilt for being the one who like brings death back into his like domestic space. But anyways. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it's, and his, the, his fixation of, on death continues thereafter. He's, he keeps this sort of shrine to his wife. He has the, his, his, he writes for this, this very small newspaper, the globe, which is a local newspaper and is almost exclusively subscribed to by, people who are aging and dying and frequently they just get back newspapers that are just saying that like the 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 recipient is deceased or something like that and it's it's all structured on his sort of how the his incapability of loving those who mm-hmm. are alive like he it seems like he can only really appreciate them after he dies even though he's living for instance with uh with his sort of caretaker and uh i guess it's his son. Adopted. It's his. It's his Is son. It? I can't. I can't recall if it's his son or yeah. I think so, or yeah, something like that. Like, maybe it's his nephew like he that he's like taken in or something like that. Yeah, maybe. but anyways. Yeah, like clearly like a father, um, fatherly sort of relationship, but also he has this very much this sort of reserved aspect to it, and the only person that he really connects with in this in the film is uh, is Cecilia, played by Natalie Bay, uh, who shares this who shares this sort of uh, I don't remember exactly how she um phrases it but like he he's it's sort of like she she also has this affinity for the dead but it's constructed in a way where she focuses on I believe it's the mm-hmm. future whereas he's sort of stuck in the past and the and the film ultimately culminates with him Restoring this chapel, this chapel by the graveyard, which he fills with candles, each one representing a different person in his life who's died, and it's and 
he fills it with portraits of a number of people. And Truffaut for this uses portraits from as uh, as wide a range as Henry James himself, Oscar Wilde, Mark Peterson, who was one of the actors in Two English Girls, um, one, like one of the English actors, Oscar Werner, uh, Jean Cocteau, Jean Moreau, Proust, and Prokofiev, uh, which is a, like, it, like he, he's very clear about you. Like it's very clear that he, even though that originally he did, he wasn't planning to act in it. He wanted Charles, Charles Denet from, from the man who loved women, but he ultimately stepped in, but it's very much, it was also a passion project for him. It's, it's very clear that it's just that he's put all of these different elements of himself, all these different regrets and sadnesses that, and it sort of seeps into the very shadowy mm-hmm. nature of this film. It's, it's very much very dark. I'm not gloomy. Isn't necessarily the right term, but it's very much taking place almost, almost like in a yeah, crypt. yeah, like it, it yeah. A crepuscular. Like, I mean, it's it's like the definition of crepuscular. I mean, like it, mm-hmm. yeah, and I I I think uh, it's much to the film's benefit that Truffaut was. Uh, forced to basically cast himself in the film mm-hmm. because I mean a I think he's he's very good in the film um, mm-hmm. and b it heightens the the sense that this is on some level a film about his own or maybe just generally cinephilia um, I mean mm-hmm. like he is someone who is like obsessed with these kind of like uh, you know candlelit images of the past. Um, who, you know, turns this chapel into like a kind of theater-like space um, where, you know, the only light that he is, you know, really interested in uh, sort of like spending time in is this this like almost theatrical light of of the, the mm-hmm. chapel, the crypt space, um, which is filled with, you know, some of these, these film figures and stuff that are important to him. And it seems to me that the the film is on some level kind of, you know, I think Truffaut interrogating his own pathologies as uh, a sort of film obsessive. And um, I think the film comes down pretty strongly uh, on the side of life and that this character has basically robbed himself of the possibility mm. of of happiness uh, because he just has this kind of obsessive fixation on these images and, um, you know, as someone who also has an obsessive fixation on images, like it's, that's a little, a little disturbing. Um, and I, I think that is, is, uh, made more powerful because, uh, Truffaut is, is in the role himself, clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he introduces this sort of disruptive element, like this very, this more explicitly narrative element of, of, um, Julian's old friend, Paul Messini, or like his someone who he once considered a very close friend, but who he considered his enemy for the last five or so years of, of his life, like him dying and him also being, uh, being Cecilia's lover at the time of his death. Like, and he, and he writes this and he writes this very harsh, very, uh, scathing sort of obituary that, that his, uh, newspaper refuses to run. And that sort of becomes like this very dividing force. And, hearing you describe it sort of like that as this sort of coming down on the side of, of life, which I agree with. I, I think it's sort of this signaling point of like the past as being both a force filled with 
good, but also filled with potential destruction because he's so unable to accept the his importance, um, Massinia's importance to his life, that he can't light a candle for him and that he can't, even though he obviously forms such a powerful part of his memory. And it is, so like you see the sort of, this chapel is both an act of sort of love, but also, also pride and mm-hmm. greed in a certain yeah. way. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think that's exactly right. I and mean, greed is, is I think, right in a way. I mean, he's kind of a, a glutton in a certain sense for this, mm-hmm. this kind of, uh, these images that he just like has to has to consume and has to be around and um you know he he basically like withers away like a drug addict in the film i mean the mm-hmm. he at the end of the film he expires and it's totally mm-hmm. nonsense that he has died i mean the like i i don't think the movie if it provides any kind of explanation as to why he's ill like it's extremely flimsy and i'm pretty sure it just provides none like he basically just like comes yeah. down with like some melodramatic disease that has no source because of course the source is not medically uh you know mm. provable the source is that he just is like so obsessed with um this project of of the chapel of of sort of living amongst the dead that um it just drain drains him of of mm. all life and i think there is a kind of almost vampiric is putting it the wrong way because it's I mean, he's sort of the the thing that has life sucked out of him, but there is just something very, um, well, like I said, very pathological about his trajectory, and 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 uh, and uh, I think he is kind of just like uh, greedy in a sense, um, mm-hmm. needing to hoard all of those things at the expense of this woman who clearly loves him for reasons that are a little bit baffling. I mean, I think one of the things that, that is maybe not entirely well conceived in the film, but it doesn't really bother me because I find that it emotionally works is, uh, this woman's interest in him. I mean, clearly they have, as you said, this kind of mutual interest in preserving some memory of the dead. But I mean, Truffaut is like so ashen and, unappealing and sort of just mean in the film that it's a little hard to understand her devotion to him. Um, but I mean that, that works, I think for the trajectory of him basically having this, this kind of angelic salvatory figure that he rejects so that he can die alone. Right. And it is very, and they're initially linked by the sort of, they, they both had this experience where for, uh, for Julian, it was his wife and for, her for Cecilia, it was her father. Where they saw their these loved ones, like they saw like a vision or an apparition of them right as they died. And I think it's to the film's benefit certainly that I think that these moments and also how and also like when when Julian's in the chapel describing all these different people that he knows their candle, he knows who they are, what they were to him. Like that Truffaut doesn't the. Truffaut only really illustrates them by just the way that he moves his camera, by the way he focuses on these people telling these stories. Like it very much, even though the film is very much about the past, like it situates it sort of in this presence, in this, um, in like the lived reality of their moments and like trusts these words, these, um, 
the expressions of these people to, to well i mean out. i think Truffaut's character feels that although i think again not to push the metaphor a little too far but i mean it, that scene sort of feels like someone like you know taking some date home and being like let's walk through my criterion collection you know like <laughs> like this film we only pull this one out like this one you know was really important to me like check out my blu-rays you know like and she kind of goes along with it and again that's that's what i think yeah, is a little yeah. hard to accept on some level in the film but i, I mean to me again it just it seems rather pathological but I mean, yeah. if I went, yeah, you know, I think if I went home with uh, the Truffaut stand in here, and it was like, "Hey, let's uh, let's go hang out with all my photos of my like dead friends," <laughs> I don't know. I'd be a little, little yeah. put off. Yeah, and she said she explicitly says that she wants to make it just one flame, like one sort of large flame, and that's sort of like signaling, like a push towards recognizing like the shared humanity rather than like the sort of individualized, very. Like almost the overwhelming, you know, like the chapel itself is just incredibly overwhelming. Just all these candles strewn everywhere. So like it is, like it's all about how the film sort of teases out the complexities of their, of these ways, different ways of relating to the past. And I think it's it's extremely well done for that. I think it, like it's certainly one one of the one of the strongest uh, true. Yeah, I have to admit now I like some true <laughs> films. Yes, he likes some Truffaut films. What's that? <laughs> you like some yeah, Truffaut yeah. films. <laughs> Have been converted to some degree. next film in the slate was Camouflage by Christophe Zanussi, another returning director. This is, I think, his, his fourth appearance at the festival, though the third one we were able to see. And this is sort of, it takes place in a very, over the course of this summer camp, I guess, I think they keep referring to it as a summer camp, even, even though it's sort of very much this college sort of... Yeah, it's sort of like an, an academic the, retreat. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good way of putting it, this sort of symposium on linguistics where, where there's a jury you know judging the the papers and it's and it's all about the 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 conflicts especially between the, uh Yaroslav this PhD student and who's who's hoping to become a professor and and work with his colleagues who who's helping running who helps run the retreat and Jakob a professor who's also in who's who's the other head of who, who's also helping running out the tr retreat and their sort of conflicts, the Jakob's very jaded sort of um, relationship, uh, relationship with, with the other members of his department um, and especially the provost who, who comes in to help facilitate things and, you know, give out the prizes towards the end. And 
it's I, I did I did like this a, a good a good deal. I think that it's very much the work of someone that you can tell who was very who knew this milieu very well and it's it uh Zanussi himself studied both physics and philosophy in university and you definitely get the sense that he knows the way that academics can be very petty towards each other, can be very uh cutting, very frank in their sort of opinions and the wit and the way that they relate with each other and also just how unbelievably horny that uh, <laughs> even these even these college students who are you know very much in the academic realm uh, can be and it's I, th- I think the pl- the pleasures of the film are mostly in that and the sort of in getting the sort of particulars of it I, I don't know mm-hmm. if like the necessarily the overall way in which the film progresses are necessarily as strong for that but I think it 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 st- certainly it's very sturdy in that particular way. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I, it's all the small details in this film that are appealing, and I mean, I was a little surprised to find myself uh, sort of taken with this movie. I went in with rather low expectations, and it uh, exceeded them. Not that I haven't seen any other Zanussi movies before, but he just doesn't seem like my kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And I think, as you're implying, the overall arc of the film is I think too neatly um, like the metaphor of the film is too neat like it's very clear that this academic retreat and the debates that they're having about whether or not uh, certain papers from sort of certain schools of thought should be allowed to be presented uh, which sort of takes the form of Jacob and the younger uh, professor going back and forth about whether or not a uh, paper should be included. And then it's included sort of because the younger professor, I think basically kind of schemes to get it in there mm-hmm. and then is given uh, an award, which causes a sort of embarrassing scene at the award ceremony with the provost who's in charge of this whole thing. And who's, uh, you know, who this, this young uh, professor is going to be relying on in terms of his career success down the line. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm there's the possibility that he sort of blows his, his uh, future success because of this um, commitment he has to the kind of integrity of publishing mm-hmm. uh, or presenting what he thinks is the best paper among mm-hmm. them and not giving out an award to the sort of mediocre paper that toes the, the academic line. Mm-hmm. Like all of that is very clearly meant to stand in for the sort of like political debates in, in Poland. And, you know, I think the, the broader, uh, sort of uh, negotiations one has to do with oneself about sort of pragmatism versus idealism in uh, a sort of, you know, this USSR state and, you know, what are the limits of one's integrity and at what point does it become sort of futile and pointless uh, to try to win these like small victories when it might just be easier to sort of go with the party line. Like all that stuff to me is, like, fine, I don't know. Like, it's just not that interesting. And the fact that this academic milieu stands in for that, I mean, it just, it's sort of obvious. I mean, even down to the title, like, I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> the the particulars are indeed very strong. And I, I was really struck by just how well directed the movie is, like, on yeah. a sort of um, shot by shot, like, basis, and just in terms of how it constructs and uh, sort of transmits information to us as the viewer, it really does not do very much to situate us in this world. Like there's nothing um, 
there's really no contextual information provided at the outset. It just kind of throws us into this summer camp and we have to figure out as we go who the players are, what their positions are, what the debates are. But it's it's done so skillfully kind of at the at the scripting and directing levels that it becomes like you organically, I think, understand as the film goes along without the film needing to spoon, spoon feed you any information, like what the relationships are between all of these people. And I hate that I'm about to use this term, but like the kind of like world building of the movie, <laughs> like is, is quite successful, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I could have probably just continued to hang out in this world for a bit longer, particularly if the film had not, uh, I think, tried to conclude in a way that brought its central metaphor to a kind of yeah. uh, point of crystallization mm-hmm. um, and just kept things more open. Uh, and like, I was also kind of struck to the extent to which it really feels like something that one might encounter at a contemporary festival more than anything mm-hmm. else that we watched in this lineup. Like it is really not hard for me to imagine the Romanian new wave version of this that like looks like sort of identical <laughs> to this movie in a way mm-hmm. like it, it moves and feels like a lot of contemporary festival cinema in a way that surprised me and that I don't, I don't see in the other films that we're talking mm-hmm. about really. Yeah. That's good. That's, that's a point I hadn't thought of, but I think it's true. And I think it is, it does feel a little bit different from the other, the other two films I've seen in that because it, it is very much, like it keeps it loose in a certain way. I think like the, the for instance, there's a lot of handheld for these long periods of talking between uh, Yoslav and Jakob and sort of like subtle or not so subtle debating between the two. Um, and it, But then it's also contrasted with these very long dolly shots between like at the presentations and like this sort of classroom that all the people are gathered in by this pool where during this scene where the provost uh, decides to dive in and... and uh, it's 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 and so like it's, it just has this very it i think i think it's most weakest moments like you said are the ones where it leans too heavily on the sort of ominous nature of it i think like the the last 10 minutes though while not well i think not executed badly i think it's just like very final in a way where 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 Jakob finally taunts Yaroslav too much by revealing that the object of his affection, a uh, English, a, a student from England who's on exchange, um, it, like is have, like is is um, sleeping with someone else, and so he so Yaroslav tries to drown Jakob and like assaults him and things like that, and it it does maybe push it a little bit too much into this realm where it's unsustainable. Whereas I think where like the the order of things are is unsustainable. Whereas I think that the order of things is and like the sort of revelations that Jakob tosses out casually because he, he just as he says he's just so bored with everything like that that's really where the the strongest moments of the of the film are when, when it just like dives into those particulars of this of the, of the politics of debates um yeah it, it's just very like when it settles into that I think it, it, it is at its strongest yeah, I mean, I think the ending, like, the the Jakob character is sort of this, like, Mephistophelian figure, like, throughout, and, like, the ending, like, he, like, literally, like, almost, like, literally becomes, like, Mephistopheles, like, in the, in the, it's, like, a little, yeah, it's just, like, a little much, like, mm-hmm. he, like, 
in in a in a literal way, he doesn't like come back from the dead. Like he's clearly just like pretending yeah. to be dead. Yeah. He sort of plays dead at a point um, to scare the younger professor into thinking that he's like accidentally killed him. But in a certain sense, he has a kind of almost satanic like mm-hmm. you know power that he like comes back from the dead. Um, <laughs> and again, yeah, it's just a little too neat. But it's not a movie that I would object to seeing again. Which yeah. you know. I, is saying something given the fact that I didn't really want to see it at all, having read the description of what it was about. But, uh, you know, the way that Zanussi does deal with the crowds in the film, I mean, he's very, very smart in how I think he deals with like the foreground and background action and our situation in the camp and understanding, you know, how these people relate to each other and, um, you know, how they move through certain spaces and how certain characters sort of take on and take off certain personas as they enter into different kinds of spaces and in interactions mm-hmm. with different kinds of people is all just really, really well done and, and sharply observed. And, um, it's that kind of like small bore stuff that is, um, you know, is where the film succeeds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Here we enter the stretch of films that both Evan did not watch and which I am <laughs> not, a <laughs> not especially, uh, which which I can't really say I cared for. Um, and this one, it begins with Blood Brothers, directed by Robert Mulligan. I, while I don't think it's certainly not the worst film that we've discussed on this podcast, I, I think it's quite possibly the most pointless inclusion uh, in the NIF, in, in NIF thus far, simply because it, it just feels like a strange like a strange choice because this this obviously Robert Mulligan, director of To Kill a Mockingbird, and Summer of Forty Two. Uh, this is sort of towards the last third of his career, so uh, so I and it doesn't really seem to have a particular sort of relation to you know any prevailing trends or anything like that. So there's not really a sort of ink. I can't really see a reason why it's included other than the festival filmmakers really liked it for some reason, uh, but. Nevertheless, it, it is in here, and it's very much in a sort of like trying to be like it's based on a on a Richard Price novel of the same name, and it's very much trying to be sort of in this sort of social realist realm, but also it tries to lean very heavily into into the melodramatic shifts, the melodramatic points, and yet it really can't commit to either, and thus it just feels very. It feels phony. It feels kind of flat in in its own way. Even though I think that maybe there are uh, like there there are some maybe like better elements, but I think on the whole, it's just incredibly unsuccessful. Um, it's, it takes place in the Bronx and uh, and the in this in this uh, Italian family, the De Cocos and. It centers primarily on Stoney, the the elder son of this family, played by Richard Gere, uh, same year as Days of Heaven, um, and and it surrounds his relationship between him and his father, uh, Tommy, played by Tony Lobianco, and his uncle Paul Servino, uh, his uncle's name uh, nicknamed Chubby, and it is, and basically it's just sort of centering on his torn desire between working in the sort of traditional construction worker, uh, union man sort of, um, uh, union man 
archetype that his his entire family has been working in before and which his father has lobbied for the union to accept him and his desire to work with children in a hospital uh, like as a recreational assistant but a lot of it, it just feels very contrived in its own way like the basically the the definitely the nature of this film are these two plot points with his mother um marie played by Layla Goldoni, where it's where the, literally the only thing, two things that she does in this film are his 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 brother suffers from anorexia and and so she keeps and she doesn't know this so she keeps berating his brother to eat and like it eventually becomes abusive and he sort of has a, a fit and and collapses and so that's basically the engine the narrative engine to get him to the hospital so he can know about this position basically and then much later on there is this completely terrible completely out of out of the blue sort of plot where because uh tommy's consistently unfaithful uh she has she attempts to initiate an affair with this sort of very like very much a mama's boy very much sort of like uh like a a creep who hangs out in the laundry room of their apartment complex. Like she tries to initiate an affair with him and just, and even though he, it doesn't really happen because he, uh, because he, he has a premature ejaculation, uh, like, uh, Tommy finds out and beats her very severely. And that's sort of the engine so that Richard Gere decides not to like not to commit to either but just leaves uh, decides to leave on his own and he for some reason takes his brother with him as well and so it's just like all these different narrative contrivances just feel very forced and I, i don't know if it's handled better better in the richard price novel but it's just very it's very overbearing in its way uh it's like and i think maybe the one of the more clear examples of that is that Possibly the best scene in the movie is the scene of him, the singular scene of him working as the recreational assistant in the children's ward. That's where his, where the title of the film comes from, where he says that, um, like he initiates all these children who are in the hospital into this sort of faux Native American tribe. Um, like, and, and, you know, like it, and it's carried out more successfully because it's just Richard Gere, like, being very animated being very uh like like committing to the sort of strange spiritual nature of of this uh of this sort of exercise and and like it's and so it gives it a lot more of a genuine feeling of of animation than the rest of the film though i will say this is almost certainly the only film uh that i know of where which involves an extensive conversation between richard Gere and and Paul Servino uh, talking about how to make a woman come. Uh, and this goes on for a good three or four minutes uh, towards the very beginning of the film. And it's just, but but then, but and that, that opening actually, it seems like it gives Servino a much bigger role than he actually has in the rest of the film. Um, it, it's just, yeah, it, the film does not, it's just like there's, there's just a lot of things that are shoehorned and, and do not cohere. That's gonna be a pass very, for me. Yes, yes, very new Hollywood in its way. Uh, and as someone who's not really 
a big aficionado of New Hollywood, especially in, in this sort of form. Uh, yeah, not good. No, thanks. No, thanks. Yes. Uh, the next program in this slate is Styles of Radical Will. The, the description actually from the sort of NIF 50th anniversary book uh, says that it, with the title borrowed from Susan Sontag, these three films investigate various aspects of contemporary politics. Um, and this is sort of manifested in some ways in, in the latter two more obviously than the first one, not necessarily that much. The first one is they are their, they are their own gifts. They are their own gifts, co-directed by Lucille Rhodes and Margaret Murphy. And it basically is a... I actually couldn't tell... I, I think there might be a possibility that only the first of these was actually included in the film and that the, maybe the other two were added later on. I'm not exactly sure. But as it stands, it's three um, three short segments. The film runs about an hour about about three artists. Uh, the poet Mario Rus- Rukeyser, Rukeyser, who wrote the poem that, that gave the title of the film. Um, dance choreographer Anna Sokolov and painter Alice Neal. And basically it is just, it's composed of some scenes in them at work, but mostly just interviews with them and sort of discussing how they intersected in some way or another with politics. So I don't think it's necessarily the focus and I think the focus is the, of them purely as artists and they're presented one, um, one at a time, each in a row. And, well, it, it does definitely cover some interesting parts with Rukeyser. It talks about her, like the, the most contemporary moment is when it talks about the incarceration of the Korean poet Kim Ji-ha um, and also talks about her involvement with the Scottsboro trials, Spanish Civil War. Um, and then for Sokolov, it talks about her sort of intersection with the Jewish experience, uh, especially this, especially how she worked with uh, with. Um, worked on a piece about the Holocaust um, and also how she worked, she collaborated with uh, L.A. Kazan and Tennessee Williams. And then for Alice Neal, uh, basically about her painting style and how it sort of depicts in this very exaggerated but but visceral sort of manner about uh, uh, like notions of like the, the environments basically in which these, in which her subjects live in. I think I think those are the the individual points are interesting, but I don't think that it really. I think the main failing of the film is just it doesn't really link them together in any particular way. Like it just feel because I don't know if necessarily cross cutting between these three different interviews would solve it, but it does not. But as it stands, it does. I feel like expanding on one or just keeping keeping them as individual shorts might work better than juxtaposing them. I because as it, even though they're all. Contemporaries are all living in New York, at least um, as far as I'm aware. It doesn't feel like they're necessarily linked by a sense of milieu, a sense of their shared interests or shared artistic um, endeavors. Like it just feels like because they're women and they're artists and they're they lived at around the same time. That's why they're included together. So it, it doesn't uh, it it doesn't necessarily uh, it, it doesn't necessarily capture or elaborate on them in, in any meaningful way. The next, uh, the next, the next uh, film in this, in this slate uh, is a short CIA case officer directed by Saul Landau and a 30 minute short. So we were unable to see this, uh, but it 
Is I assure you, I wouldn't have watched it even if it was. <laughs> Uh, it's a portrait of John Stockwell, a CIA officer in Angola who had to choose between his career and his conscience. Probably exactly what it says on the tin, you know, uh, interview with an interview with uh, Stockwell, maybe stock footage as well. Uh, obviously can't really comment on it because I didn't see it. And then the last was uh, with Babies and Banners, a story of the Women's Emergency Brigade uh, directed by L Lorraine Gray. I should say that this was nominated for uh, Best Documentary Feature, even though it's just a, a hair over 40 minutes. And uh, also Blood Brothers was actually nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for some reason. You know, it's the Academy. What can you do? Uh, and so with Babies and Banners is centers on the, on the, uh, the union, the, the labor strike at, in Flint, Michigan. Uh, and it takes place on the sort of on the it documents the rec hang on let me just get it out it it it's about the it centers on the general motors sit down strike in 1936 1937 and it takes place at the 40th anniversary base focusing as you might expect on the role of the women in the um, in in the union strike, and it's and it's comprised basically of interviews with the uh, with the women at, at on the event of this 40th anniversary, um, and all the interviews seem to have been done one day before the anniversary celebration, which forms the sort of coda of the film, and I I, I do think it is fairly successful. I, I don't know if it's necessarily as I think I think maybe it doesn't quite lean into the sort of present tense setting that the potential of juxtaposing interview and and uh, and footage from archival footage from that time might have done, but I think that is pretty. It it's pretty focused in its way. I think that it at points maybe leans a little bit too much into the sort of folksiness, sort of midwestern sort of uh, um, conception, but I think that. A lot of the time, it is very clear where it stands politically. Very clear in its um, in just laying out the facts in a very concise and very convincing manner. Just advocating for both the both the labor struggle and also the role of the very vital role of the women in it. Just even even though they weren't necessarily, and I think I think it's very detailed. Is the thing it's very clear about say why the women there were many women who worked there but they were they were um they were not part of the of the strike you know sitting in the factories because the for, for the most part because the to to avoid sort of um s rumors or scandals about women being in the same confined space as the men for a, a long period of time things like that and like about the role of the socialist and communist parties in training the women and, and training the men in in strike strike tactics and so i think it's just you know a very dedicated very solid um solid documentary i, I don't know if it's necessarily as like it's it's no harlan county usa for instance but it's i think in its own way it's you know it's pretty solid and clear 
the next film in this in this lineup is Newsfronts. Uh, the I don't believe it was it wasn't the debut of it wasn't the debut of Philip Noyce, but it was one of his first films. Uh, the director of who, who would later to go on to direct some of the Jack Ryan films uh, and sort of become better known as a director of action. Who directed the Jack Ryan movies? Like it's yeah, Clear and directed, Present Danger or whatever? Yeah, wow, Clear okay. and Present Danger, Patriot Games. So better known as a director of action for uh, at, like later on in, in his career. But in this one, it's a very... I, don't, I wouldn't say necessarily a straightforward drama. I think that it is... I think there are certain interesting things about it and also the sort of perspective that it takes up doesn't necessarily cohere as well as you might hope, but I think it's it's certainly interesting. It's basically a, it takes place over a decade, uh, over 1948 to 1958 sort of, and it, and it centers on, as you might expect, the, on us, on the newsreel companies at this time, mainly focusing on the Australian outfit Cinetone, uh, which competes with the much larger Newsco International. And Cinetone, it's this, I think it's actually based on a sort of true story or is this the true, it, it incorporates in a sort of Forrest Gump-esque way the, this, you know, the actual, actual footage, actual newsreel footage that was shot at the time um, of, for instance, the, Referendum in 1951 in Australia to ban the Communist Party, um, the the Hunter Valley floods in 1955, and the sort of disrupting the main disrupting elements towards the end of television, sort of superseding the newsreels where you would go and pay some money to go and sit in a theater and watch the newsreels, and it's very much perhaps the most notable element about it is that it is. It switches between black and white and color. I don't know exactly. Like the first section takes place entirely in black and white, and like some of the other ones later on uh, take place also in black and white. Most of the film is in color. I don't know why there is this sort of strange juxtaposition, but it it's mostly it's mostly it's a very nostalgic film. I'll, I'll say like it's very much. I don't know if it's necessarily saying that the it was a better form of conveying it but it's very much about the professionals the, the professionalism the sort of ways in which these people came together at this time to to convey the stories in uh to to convey the to convey the, these new stories and convey them in a way that was fair and accurate which is which i guess you could say i, I didn't really even think of the sort of potential potential intersections with with current events uh though i don't think it's i, I don't think the film is necessarily trying to con comment on a particular present tense situation i think it's just meant to be like a historical sort of piece and you know there, there are some affecting things about it i think that the ways in which it moves at a sort of linear like like it has a linear progression but i think it's there are many ellipses throughout it's just a very like it, for instance, the main character, essentially the main character, is more of a ensemble piece, but the main character, essentially uh, Len, played by Bill Hunter, becomes, like he, he, over the course of the film, he's married, 
his children and he he's divorced and takes up other relationships but i think it's but very few of those events are actually depicted it just like it jumps forward in time and he has a wife for instance and i think that those well i don't know if it necessarily meshes with the subject of the newsreel and like the sort of you know bit by bit progression that that without the lack of like a daily schedule or something like that is inevitable i don't think it necessarily intersects with that but i think it has the i think it's you know it it lends a sort of it lends an interesting aspect to the way in which the film which noise tells his story um i don't and it's very much because of that it becomes a film about its individual moments. I think the strongest section is the friction that results from the labor, from the um, from the allegiances, like the political allegiances that the each of the characters have. And there's especially a like there's this one moment where the narrator of the newsreels he refuses to read a line which calls um, the which calls this, these certain government interventions tantamount to a police state. Uh, obviously very, very relevant to, to uh, the events of the past week. And of course we must say solidarity to, to all the protesters. But it is, I don't, I, I think maybe the film is, it tries to do too much essentially. Like it's, it's trying to convey too large a, too large a swath of history to really, um, to really, resolve all these different contradictions that each of the characters have and the the ending i think really crystallizes that because he ultimately rejects the um he he rejects this offer from one of his former co-workers to come work for hollywood and work in a more um narrative realm to film like to to continue as a newsreel uh, as a newsreel cameraman and the ending is sort of it's 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 this very hokey like freeze frame of him walking down this tunnel, and then it has this footage of events um, on which a a shot of him like filming is superimposed, uh, and so like it it's sort of like a, after the complications that noise sometimes introduces, it feels far too pat. But on the whole, it is it's interesting because of how much it relies on sort of both the archival footage but also recreation like it recreates the blood in the water match um olympic match between uh uh the czech republic and russia or uh, czechoslovakia and russia um and like and the hunter valley floods and so i think there are interesting aspects to it i don't know if it's really coheres much but it's uh it's it's more it's more a little more engaging than I uh, had anticipated. So a resounding endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> the next film is the Apple Game by Vera Hitlova. Uh, actually, her well, her only feature appearance in the festival, though she had a short in the Pearls of the Deep uh, omnibus. And unfortunately, and I. Among the many films that I've seen in the interim between that and and this, between that omnibus and this, I saw Daisies, which I did not care for, and this is very much in that realm. Very much, it's it's trying to be that sort of satirical, satirical screwball over like Battle of the Sexes, and it takes place in this maternity ward, 
or centers on the sort of maternity ward relationships between this uh, between this sort of doc between this doctor and the two women that he's juggling, one a new nurse in the ward and uh, a married woman. But it just does not have any sense of rhythm. It just does not, it feels so keyed up in the way that, and it does, and so it just doesn't, but it doesn't feel keyed up enough to push it into the full sort of stylization that this sort of thing needs. And so it's just very irritating. Uh, Check me away, this at it again. Yes. Yes, exactly. God. And and to further s- uh, make that war flashbacks to Ivan Passer's <laughs> intimate lighting. intimate lighting, and that was one of the better yeah. ones I thought, or like one or one of the less irritating yeah. ones. Yeah, like that, a, that one was just an irritating movie. But. Yeah, that one was just there, whereas this one uh, is tries to do something but does not succeed in it. And for some reason, the 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 doctor. It's played by fellow Czech wave, New Wave director Jiri Menzel. I do not know why he's why he was chosen as the actor. I don't know if he acted all that much uh, otherwise, but um, it's just yeah. The for some reason the opening is actually done in this very like it actually reminded me of Terrence Malick for some reason just in the way that like the, these like very wild camera movements like of like more mundane things and like these very associative match cuts between seltzer water like in a cup uh, like olives um beans <laughs> mice i don't know like and like it's very different from the rest of the film like it's sort of this opening barrage of images that doesn't really appear again and i don't know why they're in there but like it's but after the rest of the film it's actually much more interesting and, and much more sort of evocative of something whereas the rest it's like it tries to throw it. It's basically trying to encapsulate all these different, um, uh, like basically the the extremes of their of their sort of of their interactions of their romantic interactions. That basically the 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 new nurse she's basically entirely incompetent unless until the film requires her to be competent and then she successfully delivers a baby or something or in this moment she towards the middle of the film she is uh she helps birth a calf like a like a like they visit a farm i think one one of his relatives farms and she helps birth a calf because she says she grew up as a country girl and like like it's like things like that where like it tries to impose these characteristics onto this group of very distractible very horny very uh just boorish characters but doesn't really try to differentiate from them in any meaningful way except their gender basically like it's very essentialist in that sort of way like they they like they just try to hitlova depicts them as like this sort of undifferentiated mass except for uh by um by whether they were a man or a woman, and it just feels very overdetermined in its way. It and like, and I think just the the actual filmmaking, it's lots of handle, which isn't a problem. But but she cuts far too frequently. She doesn't really let interactions play out. There's especially some scenes in a in a club where there are musicians playing, and she cuts to them for like two seconds before cutting back to the conversation, and it just throws off the rhythm either of the conversation or of the performances and 
it's just things like that that just and there are also a lot of what seem to be uh in, intended as sort of shock cuts to to babies being birthed and it looks like it looks like real births uh, which is and like and there's one c-section towards the end and i don't really like it seems like the most charitable explanation i could give is that it's trying to uh, serve as a reminder of the reality in which they're working, like and and like sort of serve as a counterpoint to all of the romantic comic hijinks that are taking place otherwise. But it doesn't. If it, it just feels very hollow, it feels like a sort of desperate attempt that doesn't really play out. Um, and it's just so check me right. Yes, yes, very. It's yeah. It's it's a very check me way film. It's a very. It, it just feels very. Uh, like very very shrill in a way that doesn't that does not uh appeal yeah it's like like it it's too mundane when it try when it's supposed to be manic it's too manic when it tries to be <laughs> mundane uh so it's that's basically that that that's it that's the crux of it basically the next film is it's 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 also another comedy but for me, a far, far more successful comedy. Uh, this is Get Out Your Handkerchiefs, directed by Bertrand Blier, uh, and probably a sort of sensation, both critically and commercially, in the U.S. Uh, somehow, it it actually won the won the best film of the year from the National Society of Film Critics. Uh, it, it was behind Days of Heaven and Deer Hunter on the first three ballots, but then pulled ahead on the fourth. And it also won the Best Foreign Film Oscar, uh, which is surprising for, for this film because it is so gleefully, uh, gleefully, consistently outré and, and willingly uh, perverse in its way, while also, I think, uh, being extremely... It, it, it's, I know for you, it's not... Uh, you, you don't particularly take to it, but for me, I think... It exists almost in the sort of Hongian realm where. Let's not get carried these, away here. Uh, I mean, I like. I, I don't I, I, like. It's not trying. Like it. It go, It's going after a different thing, of course. But I think it. It. It's very much about the sort of relationship between these two men and their sort of, um, like how a lot of their interactions, a lot of their romantic entanglements are an attempt to one up each other, but while also affirming the sort of the not camaraderie but like the sort of shared their shared recognition of themselves of each other as like friends in a in a particular way that's both genuine and also self-serving and i i I find that extremely funny and and fun to watch uh but it basically the the plot is is uh, it it centers on three people, Raul played by Gerard Depardieu, Patrick Dewaire, or Stefan played by Patrick Dewaire, and Raul's wife, Solange, played by Carol Lohr. And it's, and should note that uh, this is reuniting Blier, Depardieu, and Dewaire from, from their previous film, Going Places, uh, which is even more outre and... Uh, which I haven't seen, but which is even more outre and controversial. And basically, Raul and Solange's marriage is is lacking in all sort of intimacy and love. So in desperation, he turns to 
Stefan, who happens to be in the same restaurant as they are in, and attempts to get him to sleep with her. And eventually this in, turns into this sort of menage a trois situation, except that, and like, so they take turns sleeping with her and they, and they all live together in Ronald Solange's apartment. But, but Solange doesn't, th- derives no joy from it. And eventually when they try to, to be camp counselors for this group of, for this summer camp of young boys, she, uh, she falls, she falls in love with this prodigy Christian, uh, who is played by, played by Riton Liebman, uh, who's 13 years old. And it's very, and obviously the perversities of that are, um, are very self-evident, but it's, but it's done in a way that I think enhances all of the, like it feels, it feels like a very natural progression of the dynamics of the first half of the sort of one absentship of the, like the, that's most clear in the, when they're introducing each other to their apartments and for Raul, it's pointing about out how he has such a wonderful conventionally sort of conventional household where, you know, he he has a wife that does beautiful floral arrangements. She he has a fireplace that he can just sit in his chair and look at and just like appreciate the sort of domestic nature of it. And Stefan is very visibly like awed by it in a certain way. And then for Stefan it's his immense collection like his collection of every single pocket books and like his sort of intellect and how he listens to all these Mozart records. Later it's revealed that he's and like he's explain this all in a, like a very prideful manner and Raul in, in turn is very awed by that. And then of course that's upended by Christian who has a IQ of 158. And when they claim, when they claim that they are on a, like when they claim that, Oh, they have probably high intelligences as well. Like, I don't know why the IQ test is depicted in the way that it is in that, but it's like, it's very clearly, well, I do know it's it's very clearly farcical. It's very clearly sort of poking fun at both their sort of inflated um, impressions of themselves and also Christians in turn, like how he's already internalized these sort of very patriarchal, very uh, boorish ways of masculine behavior, even though he's expressing it in a far different way. And it ends with a uh, Christian, basically the master of his own house, his father, his his industrious father who had previously been seen being accosted by his striking workers uh is like in a is in a wheelchair and Solange is pregnant with Christian's child and this seems to take place in the matter of of 6 months like the the jump between that and it's just very i think it's very it's very like uh, like maybe i i will say that maybe it's a byproduct of having of this stretch of films uh, that was concluded just now, but I, fu- I thought it was just a total delight. I mean, I, uh, a comedy, you know, whatever is a highly <laughs> subjective thing. Like I, I can't say I found the film funny, but I can't really per se fault it for that. I, I think, uh, m- well, one of my challenges with the film is that I think it has this, like, uh, what I think is meant to be this like accretive sort of trajectory where, like mm-hmm. in each scene, like some new person or object or um, 
like, uh, I don't know, uh, valence is kind of like added to the central relationship and it's meant to just kind of like keep growing and growing and they keep glomming on new people, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, sort of like new situations. But it, it, strangely to me, didn't really feel like it had any real momentum. And I think the reason for for that, the reason I felt that way is that the people are just like nonsense to me. Like they don't (laughs) make any sense and not in a way that's like, that I need them to behave like perfectly psychologically real realist, you know, specimens walking Mm -hmm. around like they're in, you know, uh, some documentary, but I just Mm -hmm. like, there's no insight into these characters as people for me. And so what I'm left with is the characters as like avatars of the kind of like sociological, uh, like structures that they stand in for, which I, I mean, I think the film is going for that on some level, but at the same time, like, I, I don't really know, like, is the film suggestion that they, in this relationship that they build together are like rejecting the kind of like bourgeois values or are they just like a kind of malformed, like weird mirror version of those same values. Like, I mean, I I think the film has a lot of uh, critics who take issue with its treatment of Solange as this kind of like silent woman who really seems to have like no agency whatsoever, which isn't a per se a problem for me. Like I wouldn't reject the movie out of hand because of that. But Again, like, what is her fun? I don't understand what her function is in the film. Like, she is just this like object that is moved back and forth between the men. But then the I, I don't know. I, I just none of that really comes together to meaningfully, I think, either critique or attempt in a sort of perverse way to uphold the bourgeois situation that these people find themselves in. And I don't know. And given that it doesn't do that and it didn't find it funny. Like it just wasn't that, I mean, Gerard Depardieu is quite hot in it, but aside from that, I just felt sort of lost in the film. Yeah. I I think it is like for me, it, it works entirely because I see it as the, as this sort of warped mirror version, but also in some ways very much upholding the, the very, like the patriarchal, the normal sort of, state of being the state of things I, I think because like it's for me it's entirely the point that Solange probably until like for the first half like a- after the first scene or so she probably says like 10 words mm-hmm. uh, otherwise like I, I think I think it's very much like it and the sort of I, I did I did like the sort of on su- like at, at a certain point maybe it's almost trying to bring in too many different characters but I think part like part of the fun of that is in scene for instance while they're discuss while they're listening to Mozart very loudly um and this incredibly funny to me the like the sort of back and forth they have about oh what if Mozart was was living in our what was live like he woke up and he was living in our present time and oh we would go we would go drive in the country with him or we would invite him to dinner or something like that and they talk about how he would approach the door and all this all the while Solange is I think topless sitting in the bed uh knitting and she's like always knitting the the one comic bit that actually made me laugh in this is the (laughs) fact that every time one of them sleeps with her like in the next couple of scenes they like all show up in the same like sweater 
like <laughs> yes. like and it, the film doesn't like comment <laughs> on that at all like and you know but like clearly she's just like knitting the man that she sleeps with this like same sweater and like even the like 13 year old kid like yes. after he sleeps with her like it like in the next scene is like walking around at like i don't know whatever his school or something like and he's like yeah. in the same in the same like mini version of the sweater that both <laughs> depardieu and devoir wear throughout it's like okay that that was one bit that i, yes. I found funny I mean, and yeah. like was it, it nicely yeah. like de- like delivered with like you know no emphasis it's just like kind of hanging in there in, in the background yes. of the film and if the, the movie had more things like that that were mm-hmm. operative like constantly throughout like i might have found it funnier but mm-hmm. yeah yeah, She's yeah. it is it, yeah it, it is maybe more it's more verbal verbally based but you know though i think that it's like though i think Blier knows where to place the camera uh, I, I really like, like his eye i mean it's the first film of his yeah, i've seen like it, it is shot in a way that i found very very appealing um mm-hmm. like it actually has like a, a really amazing like opening title sequence which yeah, is like, like a yeah. minor note but still like mm-hmm. i was like oh, if i ever made a movie i'm totally stealing the opening yeah. title sequence which has like an outline of of just like a single red line that's like the outline of Depardieu's like sort of like a silhouette of Depardieu I guess mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, right. as the the credits play sort of like in the outline mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. uh, after the credits are over it like cuts immediately to the scene in the restaurant that starts the film and it's like the outline is the first image that you see which is mm-hmm. of Depardieu sitting at this like restaurant table so there are like clever visual things going mm-hmm. on in the film but right, right. um I don't know. It, it reminds me a little bit of, and I may even—I don't know how to articulate this exactly, but a, a little bit like my feelings about Boonwell, especially when Boonwell oh, mm-hmm. deals with like his really like his Catholic Church hang-ups. Like, mm-hmm. it's the kind of thing where I feel like Boonwell has like so much investment in the Catholic Church and is so like steeped in it that even though he's ostensibly criticizing it, there's a pretty strong sense that he just like can't think about anything without the Catholic church as like a referent. And so mm-hmm. to me, there's like no perspective on Catholicism in Boonwell's movies. Like they're meant to be critical, but they don't illuminate anything to me because they're not looking at any position outside of the church itself. Like they're very insular. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like the kind of bourgeois French values that this film is, on some level critiquing, on some level upholding, like function similarly. It's like, it's like a satire that is so where the, the perspective of the filmmaker is so steeped in the world that the film takes place in that it just, I don't get any sense of perspective and not being someone who particularly cares about it myself. Like I, I'm just sort of, again, I just felt kind of lost, like waiting for the movie to like reveal something that, shifts the the fundamental like gaze of the film and it just never really does it just mm-hmm. it's exactly what the what you get in that restaurant scene of the movie played out mm-hmm. in the opening scene played out for you know whatever an hour and 45 minutes yeah I, that is actually a really good comparison i think it does explain why i do take to it much more because it is very much like i, I think his perspective is exactly that but i think that i find more to glom onto in those sort of and, in those sort of uh, in that sort of mode of that satirical mode, and I think that a lot of it is just because I find more in the sort of details of like in that opening restaurant scene, which is like a full ten minutes, in which I think is done really, really skillfully, and just like how 
for instance, Stefan objects to being to leaving the restaurant while uh, this random woman that they picked off this. Depardieu uh, picked off the street uh, to talk with, to figure out what is going on, and, like what the situation he just put himself into is. Where and then Stefan refuses to leave the restaurant uh, as per their request because he just ordered a plate of mussels and he like he just really wants to eat the mussels and 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 just like the way that he's uh, is able to like pick at these details and like and elaborate on them. Like there's this while the first time when. Uh, Stefan and Solandra having sex. Raul is in this bar just moping and he tries to strike up a conversation with I guess the the the, the female bartender at the bar and she and she starts basically taunting him about happiness and about the sort of like how he he says that he's happy and the, at the situation where it's, but she can really tell especially in his, in his eyes that this is totally not the case. And it's just like moments like that, just the way that those, how Blaise seems to function equally well in the sort of macro progression of the film, but also the little moments, like the the fact that uh, that Christian is reading uh, in bed, he's he's reading uh, On Bricol by Gallimard, the uh, aunt, like, and he's obviously understanding and he's a 13-year-old boy. And then you can see in the sort of long shot of, of Raul and Stefan in their room, um, he's, that, they're, that uh, Stefan is reading Ada by Nabokov, and he says that he just finds it incomprehensible. Like, just moment, like little details like that. I, I, it, it just, it, it's, very, like, it's very clear what the film is doing, but I think I find a lot of, a lot of pleasure just that and also the the how how christian completely upends the sort of mozart hero worship that they have by men- just mentioning other other composers that he listens to uh frequently and stefan rejects rejects that vociferously he says like, oh how could you how could you listen to anything other than mozart uh like 24 hours a day and and Christian rightly points out that you, you can't just you can't just listen to Mozart you have to listen to Schubert like Schubert is what plays over the over the ending and 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 Stefan just cannot recognize it at all he just says oh it's it's not it's it's not Mozart and, and he he seems disgusted by that fact so just uh those little details I think are just ex- I just find or or I mean they, they aren't even really little details but just the how much Blier leans into 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 the perversity of these situations, like they're even with the neighbor that they summon, who becomes part of their group sort of after the after they play Mozart too loudly, and they get him back on the wagon, of course, uh, or they get him off the wagon uh, and get him to start drinking again because, of course, they would so unlo- unknowingly do that. Um, and towards the end, he elopes with Christian's mother, who was in a car accident. And he, and he just finds her, and while she's suffering from amnesia, takes her off. Uh, it's just, yeah, I, I just find that all very funny and very, very targeted at this notion of masculinity. Uh, yeah, I, I, for, for me, it, it certainly works a lot. Putain, le mec à la clarinette, c'est pas un manchot. Cherche pas, c'est le meilleur. Jarvas de Brumaire. 
Ça te plaît Hein Oui, j'aime bien. Écoute la reprise de la clarinette, là. Écoute. Bon, oh, t'as vu T'as vu comment il tripote son instrument, le père Gervase hein Alors là, chapeau. Vraiment la musique d'un type qui a jamais été heureux en amour, c'est si sûr. Tu parles. Le pauvre mec, il est mort à 35 ans. 35 ans, mais tu te rends compte de la perte Quelle époque de con, on claquait pour un rien. Forcément. Ils passaient leur The temps à te saigner, c'est tout ce qu'ils savaient faire. Is the left hand of woman, directed by Peter Hanka, the sort of the controversial Nobel Prize for Literature winner, uh, and this was one of a few films he directed, this was his debut, uh, but also he wrote, he did do some other writing, including for some Vim scripts. And this is sort of a strange reunion, essentially between Edith Clever and Bruno Ganz, of, who were the stars of Romer's The Marchese of O. I don't know uh, if this, I don't know if this was necessarily intentional, but for me, I, it's it's strange because it's, I can't really say that there's any, there are things that necessarily stand out about it, but for me, it just had this certain rhythm, this certain way of expression that, that felt actually, going back to your point earlier, that it almost felt something like a more tradition, like a more traditional art house film that you'd find from like a recent festival. Yeah. Uh, I, it's, yeah, it, it just has this strange way of proceeding and that I found, that I found kind of, It almost reminded me of uh, Angela Shanalek for yeah, some reason. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, yeah. it does kind of for me too, for, for a number of reasons, which we'll get mm -hmm. into. But. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I recall your uh, your sort of split appreciation of Shanalek. Uh, My what appreciation? I, your, your split appreciation. Like, you appreciate her recent films much more. Than yeah, her. I mean, this reminds me of her weaker films, yeah. uh, <laughs> is what I would say. That's um, fair, yeah. I, I mean... Uh, I, So I was reading up about the film, and I think I saw that Hanke said that he was sort of inspired by uh, Chantal Ackerman specifically mm -hmm. in this film, which mm -hmm. I think makes a lot of sense and is sort of apparent. And I think part of what you're maybe getting at with the way that it feels like a sort of contemporary festival film maybe has to do to a certain extent with, I think, the what seems increasingly sort of titanic importance of of ackerman on yes. subsequent generations of filmmakers which i think was maybe not as well understood for unfortunately much of the time that she was alive but i think mm -hmm. she's had mm -hmm. a pretty big influence and so in a weird way it's like this film almost prefigures like the ackerman influence that would come later and to a certain mm -hmm. extent but I, i think unfortunately the ackerman comparison which hanka himself invites is actually quite a damning one because <laughs> the film is ostensibly a movie about a uh, woman's domestic life. Uh, she lives with her son mm -hmm. uh, and Bruno Gans, who is her husband, returns home from some sort of trip to Finland. It's unclear. He's been there for a while. I think mm -hmm. it's unclear how long he's been there, but not like a weekend trip. Like He's been there for like a couple months or something like that, working on a work project. Mm -hmm. And Uh, when he returns, they sort of take up their domestic life again, and she says, basically the day that he comes back, like she had an epiphany mm -hmm. that he was going to leave her, 
and so he should just like do it right now and t- basically banishes <laughs> him from her her house mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. the problem with the film for me well there are some multiple but the biggest problem is that i don't think it has any sense of her domestic life as like an actual lived-in thing that exists at mm-hmm. all and like when you compare that to any of the the ackerman films that deal with a somewhat analogous figure or situation the stark contrast in the in in the way or there's such a contrast between the way that ackerman has just absorbed everything around her in the milieus that she lives in and films in and transmits them so clearly to the viewer and Mm -hmm. this to me just felt so amorphous like i i don't have any sense of these people's lives and all of the domestic details about her life just seem like bullshit like i Mm -hmm. the most like the totemic thing for me as i was watching the film that like i think literally created like an audible groan was (laughs) when um at some point she goes and sees an ozu film which is already mm-hmm. kind of like eyebrow raising, but yeah. she's like a translator. So I'm like, okay, maybe she's like got a little more of like artistic inclinations. <laughs> Bruno Gans plays this like corporatist businessman, yeah. which I also mm-hmm. don't really believe because Bruno Gans just does not exude that energy, but whatever. <laughs> like, so she's married to this like corporatist business guy, but she's like into Ozu films like kind of doesn't mm-hmm. already make sense. And then like a couple scenes later, they have a domestic confrontation and there's a fucking poster of Osu yes. like yes. in the background of the yes. scene. And I, and like, I was just like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like this woman, I'm sorry, this woman, <laughs> if I'm to believe that this is like telling me something about the, the kind of like life of this basically like domestic woman in 1970s Germany, like that woman does not have an Ozu poster on her wall. Like it, she just doesn't. It, and it just, it was like this clear, uh, like synecdoche for all the film's problems for me. Like it's just really false and empty. And I, I just, she doesn't exist to me as, as a person at all. Right. I, I think on some level I do agree with a good deal of that, but I think that like from the strange thing, about it is that even though it is very much like an incredibly austere film, very like all of these very hard compositions in in Academy ratio, which I think are like especially for a debut of a of a prose writer, I think are are surprising. Like are they they are very clear and like very concrete in a way, which I respond to. I think there's a certain juxtaposition between that and and a like. And an amorphous, like a very amorphous, very free-floating sort of uh, sort of narrative. But I think the contrast of those two, I think, interests me. And I don't know why it necessarily captured my attention as much as it, as it did. But it is, like, I think the, the film is encapsulated in these sort of... It's encapsulated in the disjunctive. It's very much about, like, I think there are these a bunch of sections where she just seemingly just get up, gets up and walks away she just walks away into this for with unknown purpose and she just seems to go and it almost they almost play like dream sequences because she the neck like the it cuts and then she's just back in the home so yeah. it, it's almost and i think that the especially the theater sequence to me like that played almost like a that played like a dream sequence like she's there with her son and they're just like sitting there watching it 
I don't know which Osu film it was, uh, but, but uh, it's it, one of the I think it's one of the silent ones. But yeah, it looked like that. It was like a silent film. Yeah. Tokyo or something. I don't know. Yeah, um, and it's just there's a lot of difference, and like, and I think that 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 dynamic is also present in the scenes with Bruno Gans. Like most of them, after their breakup, consist of of him of like of violent outbursts from him but then by the end they're sort of reconciled like like there's this very strange rhythm strange dynamic to them that's also i think reflected in the in hanka's editing patterns that mm-hmm. i think that, yeah. that worked for me yeah i mean the editing is very much what i mean aside from the like uh you know fleeting ozu references mm-hmm. what what brought to mind uh, shanalek's work but um yeah i mean the the kind of like lapidary approach to the editing like it is for shauna like i think is just like an incredibly like high risk Mm -hmm. like endeavor and you have Mm -hmm. to have i think a really at least for me you have to have like a really powerful undergirding of like character Mm -hmm. to make that stuff work in this kind of film and again i just like Edith Cleaver, like, I, I don't understand what she's doing in the film, and I understand even mm-hmm. less what, what Bruno Gans is doing in the film, but you know, he's a, a small portion of the film relative to her. I mean, the movie is just, like, so centered on her, and mm-hmm. I don't know, like, we're, we're just asked to accept her behavior uh, without, I think, any of the work being done to provide us with an explanation as to why she behaves the way she does and i think treating some of the film as as kind of like dreamscape is is interesting that's not really something that i had thought about and maybe that Mm -hmm. would help resolve some of my issues but um like with shanalek i think the films where she does not have a strong uh central figure usually when she has a weaker actress, like they just, they don't click. And I, I feel a similar frustration here that I feel with, um, you know, something like places and cities, um, from Shaunalek, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's fair. And it's, it's definitely like, I think I like that, that most of the work is done in a, in a visual sense, but I, I do think it needs like a little bit of a stronger girding. That being said, like just the, just the strangeness of it, um, worked for me like also there are some incredibly weird cameos the film takes place oh in yeah france, shows up yes in this, what, yeah i forgot about that they, yeah depardieu he has no lines but he just is sitting there at a at a train at a train station or you know like a, a train uh departure point and then michael lonsdale has a single scene cameo as a waiter that that bruno gun speaks french to uh I, I don't know why and there's also a fairly significant or you know, relatively significant uh, portion with Rudy, Rudiger Vogler, the actor who's in, who's in, uh, in the, uh, like in a bunch of Vim Vendors films, like he's in Kings of the Road, Alice in the Cities. Mm-hmm. He seems to be playing himself, like he, or he's playing an actor. And he has a very, like he, he appears multiple times in a film. So it, it, like there's a certain opacity to the film's intentions that I, that I took to, and like I said, the Marquis of oh, like it almost feels like it's taking place ten years later, and but also transplanted to modern times in a way. I I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's just like it's. I found it like an 
an inter- like a, a, a beguiling film for those reasons. Though I don't know if I'd be necessarily that charitable if I rewatched it, but you know, there there are interesting aspects. In this of lineup, you gotta to. look for the the treasures <laughs> where you can find them. Yeah, I mean, it's not yeah, it's not like a a, a poorly made film. It just is sort of like it just fails for me mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. the things that it's attempting to do, which in other right, contexts. Right are successful and interesting mm-hmm. and I, for me it's just it's a failure of observation basically i mm-hmm. just think the movie doesn't understand like he has like lots of interesting camera positions and like the movie is has strange cuts that are kind of invigorating like i think about that one shot near the end i think where she's like outside and then it cuts to just sort of a wall and her son is clearly on like a swing on the other side of the wall but you don't Mm -hmm. see the swing you just see his like feet like Mm -hmm. emerging from behind the wall i mean it's just like why put the camera there like it's strange and so you know like again not to beat on dead horse here but like sean elect you know the strangeness of of where you put the camera can get you a lot of mileage in terms of keeping that kind of like level of excitement up because it feels like the camera could go anywhere at any moment, but you also Mm -hmm. have to like capture something Mm -hmm. with the camera. And just a lot of this movie to me just feels like someone trying out a lot of stuff. I mean, this is his first time filmmaker adapting Mm -hmm. his own novel. I think I don't think we mentioned that should be said. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know, to me it has the the air of like an exercise a little bit um, Mm -hmm. than like a fully formed yeah that's fair it, it is definitely very much trying to do a particular thing that like it, it's variable in how that succeeds but i think that sometimes it can be invigorating not always but sometimes the next film is dossier 51 directed by michelle deville also based on a novel somehow i don't know exactly how because it is very much Again, it's also very much uh, like existing in a very particular aesthetic style. This one is sort of... I, I don't know exactly what style to describe it in, but it's it's very it's all taking place essentially behind the scenes of this of these espionage efforts uh, in order to ingratiate Dominique O'Fall, who is referred to for pretty much the entire film as with the codename Fifty One, who's the new head of the French delegation to the Organization for the Development of North-South Exchange, otherwise known as ODENS, uh, basically just trying to trying to infiltrate him, like to, to turn him so that he can work for this un, unnamed intelligence service, uh, their interests and their sort of interest in undermining or, or, or influencing the developments. And so it takes place almost exclusively or it takes place from a multipl- multiplicity of points of view, but that point of view is all subsumed into the the intelligence services general, um, uh, their, their general intent and their general sort of uh, like their, their general POV. Basically, it's yeah. I mean, it switches and, yeah. between like shots of like them recording like from a camera, but then also mm-hmm. like literally in kind of like Lady in the Lake style, like a, the yes. first person perspective of like. Mm-hmm the you know intelligence agent like walking around and like interviewing people or right, whatever right. yeah and I, I i found it for me i found it very invigorating i think like because it is so so and this is i know your your issue with the film by but which i find interesting which is the sort of high contrast between the very cold very 
very rigid sort of display of these different documents of these different intelligence footage of the sort of how they mentioned say oh this conversation that they had with the wife um codenamed 52 which is partially captured by lav mic like and like how it's so deliberate with those gestures while also injecting bits of humanity on the other ends on the other end of the of the people that are being interviewed like the most the most visible disruption is this very 13 minute long scene between the between this agent who is at least playing a a english student i'm not exactly sure if she's english herself the agent is or but between her and the mother of 51 uh which is in like the like under the guise of like being interested in like doing studies into into holocaust survivors and her mother isn't but like she does volunteer work with it and it's this very emotionally charged scene where where the mother talks about like this love that she had but her husband and like that that a fall is the product of a of a, an affair and how her husband denounced the man to the Gestapo and how it's how she had to live with him just to to provide for provide for Dominique and it's this very emotional scene but and it like calls into question POV especially because there is this like it takes place probably in less than five shots or so and like it's all from this person's from this agent's point of view and at one point she goes into the bathroom ostensibly like to or just use the bathroom but then she goes to change out the like flip the, flip the audio cassette over so that she can continue recording uh this this woman's confession and it's this very like the the contrast of that i found very like like it like it so openly questions this voyeurism and the 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 nature of the surveillance and control while also and that ultimately culminates in this insane sort of diagnosis of a false uh late like in, intensely repressed latent homosexuality that i found very like I, I think like just those the way it's able to so fl- fully flesh out this apparatus i, f- I found pretty pretty remarkable yeah i mean i don't i just think it like doesn't really do that i don't i don't strongly <laughs> dislike the film like it's an intriguing movie but you know as as i sort of like formulated in our discussion of spies like you know i, I think lang is is like moving towards this kind of idea of the like autonomous surveillance apparatus movie where it's like there's there's nothing but the surveillance apparatus and there's no human beings inside of it it's just its own machine um its own intelligence and i think you know i would love to see the the fritz lang version of dossier Mm -hmm, 51 mm -hmm. which i'm pretty sure would be like one of my favorite movies ever (laughs) instead you know we get the deville version and i mean he's a filmmaker who I find interesting and like uh, I find him hard to pin down. He is sort of a chameleonic figure, but because mm-hmm. of that, I like he doesn't seem to want to push the premise that he's relying on here to what seem like it's logical endpoints. Like the movie, to me, I don't really get the sense that you're like inside the machine, so to speak, mm-hmm. watching this. It feels very much to me like a movie that is conceived along more conventional lines, but that is then just being fed through this kind of like strange syntax. And so Mm -hmm. instead of being really satisfying as its own 
more conventional sort of spy or espionage movie like or instead of being satisfying as this experiment where you're really just like at where the, the position of the viewer is just like at the heart of this nervous system uh, of all this information that could just just kind of like half of each and mm-hmm. I, I mean i guess you know it, it sounds like you sort of think that's what it's doing too they just those two have more meaningfully inform each other for mm-hmm. you than they they do for me i just i don't really care about any of the human stuff in this movie i just want like you know more shots of like index cards and <laughs> you know more talk about the, the mechanics of surveillance like mm-hmm. um you know there's, there's a version of this movie that looks probably like a ricky d'ambrose movie <laughs> yeah. and you know like i'm glad he he went and made it because this like isn't really that but then mm-hmm. i also just i don't really know why you pick this this way of telling this story but mm-hmm. yeah that's fair i mean it is like i think that it's just interesting in the way that it uh like i obviously i would love to see the Lang version of this as well uh, i mean that sounds like a, a dream film certainly but it like I, I do like that sort of struggle that sort of struggle with the human element also there is some very like i think he does try to throw in uh some like disjunctive moments like there's this drawing of the of the ex-lover of uh like while they're still trying to figure out her identity sarah x of ex-lover of of 51 where like it's just this incredibly cartoonish like it reminded me of stephen chow's the mermaid (laughs) like just this sort of like very rudimentary uh figure that's with with like because this is a specific mention of with small breasts and holding like a communist and an anarchist flag just like things like that like how it throws in these these disruptions into the machine. Yeah. I mean, that's also one of the things that I find kind of puzzling about the movie. Like I, on some level it it plays almost like a comedy, like, Mm -hmm. and there's that, I can't remember the exact, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but I can't remember the the exact context, but there's that like long scene. They're all like in like a boardroom. Yeah. That's the one like revealing his like homosexual. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the, the whole like progression of the discussion is like so, asinine and ridiculous <laughs> yeah that, but like i i can't pinpoint exactly the movie's perspective on that like are mm-hmm. we meant to take that as like lampooning the like kind of conspiratorial ethos of these intelligence agencies that see these like ridiculous psychological and like conspiratorial connections between all of this guy's behavior or are we meant to sort of take it at face value that there's this like frightening intelligence apparatus that like can you know unearth your your most hidden like desires like i don't really know like it's not really totally successful as comedy to me if that's what it's intended to be but it's also not like the movie weirdly doesn't uh conjure like an air of paranoia i guess is like Mm -hmm. really at the Mm -hmm. core of of my issue with it like at the end of the day i don't leave this film like i leave spies feeling like, you know, I am, you know, under the, the thousand eyes, so to speak, of whatever, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like, state system is, like, surveilling its populace. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I leave the film just kind of like, well, these, these people are sort of buffoons. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. But, uh, yeah, it is, like, it's never totally clear. And if I'm not mistaken, Deville, like, he was a, if not a journeyman, he certainly, like, worked in many different genres yeah he did, yeah. And yeah yeah like your, your favorite is like 
Raphael by, by a very large margin, right? Yeah, Raphael, the debauched one, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which is obviously like an entirely different kind of movie um, from mm-hmm. this. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he worked in a lot of different modes. And clearly, I think he's interested in, in this film and how those modes can come together in one project and clash in one film. I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I wish that the, whatever, the, the production of that clash was, was more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. I think, yeah, it, it's just like, I think maybe it does try to take it both ways, but I think some moments, like for instance, when they're trying to formulate an operation to seduce the, I think seduce the wife, and there are just these photos of extremely hung men, just all like nude. <laughs> and somehow and I don't the, like this movie that much. I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> and then the and then the, the final project to sort of to make him to make Fifty One embrace his. his uh, being gay is called proper Operation Hymen. <laughs> I forgot. It's, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. I, I yeah, was just saying, you're not like, come on, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I don't, I yeah, don't know what to do with yeah. that. Yeah. And of course, all the department names are of Greek or Roman mythological figures. Like, it's on some level, it's like very much intended to be abstract, but on the other, like, and like removed from the world, but also it's able to sort of ingratiate itself in interesting ways. So it's, it's a, it's certainly a balancing act that, some that frequent that most of the time works for me I, like maybe not entirely and sometimes it can be a bit too suffocating but f- sometimes but but frequently it works the next film uh is uh Rainer Werner Fassbender's Despair which is one of my favorite films in this uh lineup and actually sort of nicely paired with the next one we're going to talk about yes. uh as as two films that I that feature prominently and are designed around the presence of an actor who I am very intrigued by. Uh, in this case, uh, it's Dirk Bogard, uh, who is, uh, he's a, I don't like, what is he? Like, he's just like a, a sort of rich, like chocolate factory owner. Um, who, but he doesn't really like seem to work very much. He just sort of, he sometimes around. goes into the yeah, office. Yeah, he sometimes goes into the office yeah. and has like debates uh, about uh, sort of like rising Nazism in Germany uh, <laughs> with like one of his underlings who eventually shows up in a Nazi uniform because the film and takes place yeah. in in the sort of like run up uh, to uh, the Nazis uh, taking power in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the film is. I think this isn't a particularly well loved Fassbender, and I, I sort of understand no. why. Like, the film is not super incisive, I think, about the rise of, of fascism, which is sort of on the edges of the film. I don't think it's like super, um, it doesn't have the same kind of sense of like German society and culture that many of Fassbinder's other films do. Mm-hmm. It's his, is it his only film in English? I think so. I think it's the only film in I, English where any yeah. case one of the few. Wait, or, or isn't Karel in the... Oh, Karel's in English, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, um, one of... His, fir- yeah, his one first of, film like in English, I think, yeah. not very many that he made in English. And, um, right. And so, to me, it's like, it doesn't tick a lot of the boxes that I think people want from Fassbender, but mm-hmm. that's sort of why it's pleasurable to me, because Fassbender <laughs> is someone who I like, but for some reason, I just sometimes like, have a hard time connecting with and mm-hmm. this sort of like takes all of the Fassbender aesthetics and like 
just applies them to a like Dirk Bogard vehicle. Basically, like the movie is just designed around Bogard's performance, and he the movie just gives him all of these excuses to wear insane uh, loungewear that I want very much. Like he has just the most incredible robes in this movie, um, and he just gets to be like a giant bitch to everyone and just spit venom all over the place left and right and the movie is ostensibly about his breakdown like mental breakdown mm-hmm. that is meant to be like paired or sort of paralleled i guess to the social breakdown in um in germany and again like i get feeling like the movie doesn't really have a whole lot to say about that because i'm not sure that it does but it's it's form of madness or how do I put it this way? Like it doesn't really seem to me a movie that's fundamentally about madness. And mm-hmm. I think to read it as such and to try to read into it a kind of like diagnosis of the madness of fascism, like is going to leave one disappointed in the movie because I don't think the movie does that. I think the movie is like really much more about like self-absorption mm-hmm. or I guess if you want to say that, that self-absorption is maybe a kind of madness and Mm -hmm. and the pathology of the bogard character is is this incredible self-absorption like he just can't Mm -hmm. see anything around him everything is an extension of him and so it Mm -hmm. makes perfectly logical sense that all of the the fassbenderian aesthetics are like cranked up to 11 i mean this is his most extreme some of his most extreme compositions in terms of like mirrors layered within windows layered atop like Mm -hmm. you know another mirror and Mm -hmm. The whole thing is just this like refraction of the of the Bogart persona because I think his his persona is one that is is very kind of self obsessed, and so I don't know I, I just respond to the movie as basically like this this fractal of of Dirk Bogart and like I don't really care that it's not that successful as a Fassbender. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I, I I do I don't love it as much as as you do, but I do like it a good deal. Uh, though it is. It's very. I agree that. I don't know if necessarily Fassbender f- for me works on the love. Like he's. I don't think he's necessarily central. Like the central and as- central aspect is the sort of uh, like the German society sort of thing. I think like it gets. It can get at that, but I think it's maybe more incidental and more like uh, that. And it arises more out of his sense of melodrama and his sense of how his characters relate to each other. And so I think I find this maybe more successful than other Fassbender aficionados because it's uh because it definitely relies on that and not how and we we I don't think we mentioned it, it's based on the Nabokov uh novel the same name and he is I think in that version he's a German emigre to Russia but in this one he's a Russian emigre to to Germany uh hilariously named Hermann Hermann uh <laughs> you know it it it's it's and it's sort of like a lot of it is just like, and I think that your, your point about everything being extensions of him is dead on. And I think it's sort of, it's exemplified in how the film is all about its surfaces and how like his surfaces are an expression of the, an expression of the, um, of his sort of warped mental states. And like, like you, you see that most, apparently in the actual scenes where he sees a double of himself mm-hmm. or he like, he sees a person like 
like a double of himself just like sitting in a chair while he's uh like while he's making love to his wife uh his his extremely vapid wife uh and and the and like there there is a a scene where he's just in full where he sees himself in full fetish gear which is absolutely delightful <laughs> yeah. just, just <laughs> i mean i and like we should say like the, the the whole plot of the movie hinges on so he sees these doubles of himself played yes. played by himself played by bogart right but right. then mm-hmm. the plot of the movie hinges on one of the like most ridiculous like premises <laughs> that i've ever seen in a movie which is and i can't remember the actor's name but one of the like Fassbender regulars right. um, who um, looks absolutely Lovich. yeah who looks absolutely yeah. nothing like Bogart <laughs> is approached by Bogart who claims that he looks like his double and he wants to <laughs> use him to basically like f- like I, I don't think you can say he fake his own death but he's it's almost like he wants to sort of like stage like a perfect crime that involves right, right. his own death I guess like it doesn't really mm-hmm. make a lot of sense, which is sort of the point. Mm-hmm. But one of the, to me, like the funniest things about the movie, and I do find the movie quite funny, is yes. um, that like it's unclear for a while if the movie is just asking you as the viewer to accept the premise right. that this this other actor looks like Bogart, even though they look literally nothing alike. <laughs> and for a while, I was like, okay, I guess I just the movie just asked me to suspend my disbelief. Like this is kind of ridiculous, but okay. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, like. It you sort of get a moment where you're taken outside of Bogart's perspective briefly, um, and I think one of the cops who's like investigating the crime is mm-hmm. like, well, f- I mean, obviously the guy wasn't your husband because uh, <laughs> look at this guy, he looks nothing like your husband. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I get what this movie is yeah, doing, yeah, now, yeah. you know. But again, it's just, it's about it's about the the self absorption of of the mm-hmm. the Bogart characters such that. You know, the entire world is just a projection of his own consciousness, and he he's incapable of seeing anyone as anything other than an extension of himself. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, I, you know, I, the movie has no really, like, queer content in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I think the, I think there's something about the movie's interest in this very particular kind of self-absorption that to me is like i don't i've gone on a limb here but like i think there's like a little bit of like a, a pathology in the kind of like <laughs> you know a certain kind of gay community that has a mm-hmm, similar mm-hmm. self-absorption and like i think this movie is sort of interrogating that and bogart carries with him all kinds of associations that enrich the film sort of metatextually even though the movie itself doesn't really have any of that content. And so his obsession and fascination with this man who is nothing like him is from an entirely different class, uh, which is quite important, I think, and, and mm-hmm. literally looks nothing like him. And his, his sureness that this man is just a perfect stand-in for himself and is just a, yeah. an extension of his own selfhood. Um, I don't know. I, I recognize that, I guess. Um, <laughs> as something that I have encountered, and uh, yes, I, I don't know a lot of other movies that I think are dealing with this particular subject, and so yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of just don't care about any of the like fascist stuff around the edges. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's this this conception of the Bogart persona and the kind of latent queerness of his persona, and how that the latent queerness like has this particular pathological edge that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that it is like it's 
specifically a pathology where he cannot see any other viewpoint other than his being correct. Mm-hmm. Like he he just like he sees his view as absolute truth. And so when you get moments like where he he appears to see the the painting like this this painting that he saw in uh his his wife's cousin who she has a very obvious affair with uh like a painting that that he drew like he seems to see it like the painting in like hanging in uh the his double his quote unquote doubles like run down run down apartment like he and then he like immediately goes back he he has to see and it, like it's obviously a different painting but he like he's so deluded he's so obsessed with his own perspective that he just that he refuses to acknowledge that to anyone else and so it's just like his building of his paranoia in a way that and until the ending where he deludes himself into thinking that he's an actor that he's uh you know like that he's even though he responds to his name he uh he doesn't really see himself as that anymore like that's the heavy sort of inflection of the of the ending of the film and yeah it is it's definitely a film just all about the sort of textures about how like the sudden shifts where in his in his manner in his way of presenting himself that nevertheless gets at something that that's that, that that's very pleasurable mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's uh, yeah it's sort of because it's so ex- ex- exists so fully in this realm like I, I don't know if i necessarily take to it quite as strongly but it is like there's there's definitely it, it, it's it's very like what pleasures there are are quite seductive mm-hmm. yeah i i think it's sort of like i said unfairly dismissed fassbender i, I read mm-hmm. the uh Hoberman's piece on uh, I think NIF or it wasn't on it was a, a retrospective piece it wasn't written at the time but he said in, mm-hmm. uh, in 1978 NIF offered something of a shock the international co-production despair this was not only Fassbender's most blatantly commercial movie but and to my mind a disastrous sellout which I, I find a totally bizarre position to take on mm-hmm. this film mm-hmm. that like I said I I think is like a it's hard to imagine the the more direct interrogation of Fassbinder's queerness in Carell without despair. Like, mm-hmm. this movie it leads to Carell. And I think to treat it as a sellout or to treat it as a footnote in the Fassbinder, uh, like, cosmology, uh, I, I think is to uh, misread it as like a movie in relation to the marriage of Maria Brown or something like that. Like it's Mm -hmm. not that it's, it's much more closely related to the queer strain in his, his work. And um, yeah, that's the stuff that I I think I'm most drawn to in Fassbender. And so no -hmm. wonder that I I like this one. (laughs) Right. And, And you, and we should also mention that there are like a lot of regular Fassbender actors but they're like very much at the periphery mm-hmm. like they're like Godfrey John appears for like one scene like Harkbaum is like sort of like only appears like towards the end and like it's just all Bogart basically and he's just as as wonderful yeah. as and and bitchy as you'd expect yes uh, yeah it's it's definitely definitely uh undervalued 
Uh, okay, so the next film is another uh, actor obsession of mine. Oh my goodness! Maybe yes. even a higher degree of obsession than uh, yes. Dirk I, I would I would say so. Yeah. Uh, well, it also helps that he was a director <laughs> in his own right, and his own films are quite mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, that is uh, Jean Francois Stevenon, uh, the French actor. So this film is uh, called Like a Turtle on Its Back by a filmmaker that I was not previously aware of and who I think doesn't really have a whole lot of a, a reputation. Uh, Luke. Mm-hmm. It was his feature debut though. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Luke Barrow, I guess. Uh, is how you mm-hmm. say his name. And uh, I mean, again, this is a film that I'm primarily interested in as an extension of the lead actor's persona. Uh, in this case, I obviously have no preconceptions about the director's, uh, like style or interests. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a little easier to read it as a purely uh, Stevenon project. Um, but uh, the film is about Stevenon as a writer who has come down with writer's block and is mostly just like a series of scenes and vignettes about him and his attempts to overcome writer's block, particularly how that inter- interacts and affects his life um, with his wife, uh, played by Bernadette Lafont. And Mm -hmm. as is the case with a lot, like a kind of weird amount of of Stevenon films, like it's very much a sort of like two-hander between Stevenon and Mm -hmm. his other performer. And for whatever reason, like I haven't fully developed my unified theory of Jean-Francois Stevenon yet, (laughs) but I'm working on it. But he's always almost always paired with someone like this. And um, it's more typically with a man. And Mm -hmm. part of what I find interesting about his persona is that when he's paired with these male figures, as he is in his own films that he has directed, um, this actually came out the same year as his, as uh, seven on's debut, uh, past Montagna, Mm -hmm. which is basically about a quasi homo erotic friendship that develops between, um, two men from very different class backgrounds who just like gallivant mm. through the woods when one of them gets like <laughs> sort of stuck in this small town where, where Stevenon lives. And in these films, he has this very strange energy where he he's not really queer, but not precisely straight. And mm-hmm. the relationship between him and the, the partner that he plays against like he sort of plays like the eternal drinking buddy, I guess is like how I would like describe <laughs> the archetypal Stevenon role. And there's always the possibility given the kind of like drunkenness, if not literal then figurative of, of his characters that things will like topple over into like violence or mm. some kind of like strange, asocial behavior. And, mm-hmm. uh, Oftentimes they don't, but there's always that edge that he carries with him of someone who I think is like one or two actions away from behaving outside of all of the like codes of like social behavior, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this film, in that sense, is very much in line with the Stevenon persona. Because he's playing against Lafont, I don't think it has the same like frisson that you get when he's playing against a male figure who he has a more ambiguous relationship with. But like his other performances, he seems very much like on the edge of 
this kind of brutish tipping over into this kind of brutish behavior that is fundamentally asocial and the movie is about how his writer's block threatens to destroy his life basically and he kind of becomes increasingly i don't want to say unhinged but he is uh, increasingly ejected from the realm of like <laughs> heterosexual uh domestic behavior into something mm-hmm. more primitive and that's a common mm-hmm. trajectory in Stepanon's performances and so anyways i it's not an entirely successful movie to me but i found it quite fun given that i have mm-hmm. this interest in in the lead performer right absolutely and i you you have you have passed on to me this, this interest <laughs> as well like like i think like for for both of us when we've discussed this extensively uh <laughs> over the past half year uh, year Something. maybe uh like just the sort of the nature of his presence and he's been in a number of uh past uh past festival films most most commonly with Rivette and Truffaut where he just has this very strange like you said the the sort of strange quasi queer aspect of his performance style but also like this uh like it's sort of like at it's sort of seductive it's sort of like while well, he like he's not necessarily a conventionally attractive like in in that sense like he has this strange air about him that's sort of that sort of brings that about and he also has this very childlike side yeah. which you definitely see in in this film where he's like you you sense the that part of his writer's block comes from just like he cannot get exactly the right circumstances that he needs to write until the very mm-hmm. end. Like he, he needs, he needs a sort of like, it's, it's definitely also another form of self, self absorption mm-hmm. where he's, he just needs absolutely like, and you see that in his voiceover um, that, which increasingly appears as the film goes on. And it's just, it's, it's just a strange energy. And you see that even in his like very small roles where like in, out once mm-hmm. out one where he plays uh this f- this uh, this man who just got out of prison who rides up in in, in like a full marlon brando leather. uh leather <laughs> yeah. gear like with with the with a long with like on the back of a uh, of a motorcycle rider with long hair and he like and he and he beats up randomly seems to beat up uh julia Berteau. it's it's like and yet that like even that sort of distinguishes himself and like makes it like throws the energy in a of of the film off into an in a, into another realm and he hand, he handles the like he but he also is able to handle something where it's just him like it's it's just him and Lafont for most right. of the film like like it's, he centers it in yeah a, there's in like a, a there's like a wild to quote the title of a uh, a Truffaut film that I think he's in uh, which I haven't seen but like a, a yes. wild child kind yeah, of thing about him you yeah. know and like I mm-hmm. I think that's what makes his pairings with other actors so interesting and and maybe why other actors would be eager to pair with him because you get the sense that he could at any moment, like, I don't know, start jumping up and down like a monkey in any scene. And it would, you would like <laughs> accept that that's, you know, the logical behavior for this character and the other mm-hmm. actor suddenly just like has to respond to it. And so there's the whole Stevenon persona rests always on the edge. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it puts his other performers 
they are the performers that have to act against him on edge themselves in a way um, because there's just sort of an infinite number of possibilities to where any given scene could go. It feels like mm-hmm. with Stevanon's presence. I mean, I have no idea the extent to which this film was, was improvised or not. Um, but if you had told me that the film was sort of like written on set with Stevanon, like I, <laughs> I would absolutely believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's not to take anything away from, Lafont, who I think is, uh, in her own right, a very intriguing performer. Mm-hmm. But I do wish the film gave her a little bit more to do. Um, right. Like, I do think right. she is sort of lost a little bit in the movie and is stuck a, a little bit with a kind of, like, harpy wife role. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this movie. I am curious to see other other films by this director. But I don't, unfortunately, think he ever made another film with Stevanon because I would definitely see that right away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and the film is definitely, like, it's, it's made up of very discreet mm-hmm. moments. It's, like, it, I think a lot of them end with fades, like, very quick fades to black and, like, it just moves on to another scene. Though the film takes place in a fairly compressed amount of time, it's it it's not really clear, like the, the gaps between them. Like it's, it just seems to pass by in days, and like there's, like this moment where he uh, is, or like where Lafont comes back and he's just lying on the floor and looks like there's blood, uh, but then when she rushes over to him, he has like vampire teeth <laughs> and he's, like, screeching. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, it's like, and yeah, the like kind of prankster-ish thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very. I mean, Dougal like, is prankster-ish. Like the great prank yes. movie of all time, <laughs> like you yes, know? yes, yes. Our our uh, one of one of my fondest moments of cinephilia is our, our is our shared love for <laughs> Dougal Messiers, which you introduced to me, uh, like two years ago, and you described the entire plot to me, and then I watched great it, thing. and then we discussed it. Yes, what uh. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. If you have, I assume you, have, uh, you the listener, have not seen Dublin Monsieur, and I would be happy to provide it. Uh, yeah, and it, it's just like it's, and so it's able to go off in these different directions. And I think that for um, like, and like one of the most wonderful examples is when he he's carrying on a sort of affair because the entire plot essentially surrounds him, as as you said, trying to escape his writer's block, and he says. For him, the primary he thinks his primary one is he can either write or he can have sex with his wife, <laughs> and it's it's basically that dichotomy. And so, but then he's also having affairs uh, with with other people uh, with other women, and he says that it's to test that his equipment still works, <laughs> and, and it seems to work, and this essentially forms like the the downfall or at least the temporary downfall of their relationship. But it's. Like and so there's this one scene where both his mistress and his wife are in the same cafe, and he sees this while he's coming back from the restroom. And so he goes outside and he like he turns up his collar and he's wearing these, wears these like leopard print sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you have no inkling that he has these sunglasses anywhere else, like any any time before that. But he just is able to it's not quite chameleonic because you always know it's him and you always know it's his sort of persona, but it's like, it's, it is this very off kilter sensibility. Yeah, he just has, he's the word that I always think of when I think about seven on is persuasive. 
Like he's he's mm. he's mm-hmm. sexually persuasive, even though he's not <laughs> really, as you said, con- like he's sort of handsome, but like kind of like got a pot belly and balding. Like, I, and yet, like I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, like I'll I'll say yes to that. Like I don't, I can't control it. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's just yep. he's so persuasive, and like that same that same like persuasiveness applies to the most ridiculous gestures that he can come up with. Like mm-hmm. somehow he is capable of persuading me that those gestures are like belong to a coherent person, which mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. in other hands would not like play mm-hmm. that way. So, yeah. And I suspect that's maybe like some of your problem with the the last 30 minutes or so, which is sort of like, it becomes like my, my, most apparent comparison is like something like Barton Fink or After Hours, uh, which is, and like it seems like maybe like there are these after he's been kicked out of the house for his affairs and his general lazy, uh, lazy behavior, even though he uh, we should mention like he, he writes, he attempts to take up like a gross writing position. And he writes a book on the foreign legion. And so there's this scene where he's wearing like this Lawrence of Arabia esque uh, <laughs> hats and he's like listening to marching music. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, and, but like, and so after, after he's kicked out, he like moves from place to place and he's beset by, for instance, this wealthy patron who puts him up in this house with a very, very stern housekeeper. Um, and then like he start he tries to hitchhike with, these drivers who first guess his name uh, just randomly and then uh, threaten him, threaten him with a knife, and then he is beset by seemingly fake police officers who like are trying to seduce him and then and then try to rob him. Uh, oh yeah, there is that. And, like, there's, there's, a, there's still like a weird latent queer thing in there. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's like always well, well, there. yeah, like yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's like there is like a female police officer. Like who seems like who seems to be masquerading as a police officer, but also like there's that element where he's just you know forced into a truck, and it's just like like I suspect that maybe like that sort of thing where the weirdness is imposed on him doesn't work for you as well. Yeah, I mean I don't know I for, I saw this a few months ago actually before I even realized it was in this lineup I just watched <laughs> it out of Stevan on curiosity and like I, I must say I sort of have forgotten most of what happens in the final thirty minutes mm-hmm. like there's they're just not as um, they don't feel as free to let Stevanon just do his own thing mm-hmm. as the, the right. sequences in his home with mm-hmm. Lafont. Yeah. I think that maybe the film leans a bit too much into that domestic point around like that, or right before it launches mm-hmm. into that segment. So maybe the galvanizing effect for me worked better, but I think maybe like that sort of more blatantly bizarre element is a bit, yeah, I, I, if I not think it's, it's antithetical. Like... Yeah. I mean, I agree. Like, I don't think the film could just stay in that milieu the entire time. Like, I, I don't think that would work. But it's sort of like it runs out of ideas for how to develop his writer's block. I think, and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. it just like throws him out into the world. But like, I, like the the stuff that he encounters outside of his domestic space. I don't think he could have just stayed there for the rest of the movie. But it doesn't feel as as well realized as and again mm-hmm. it's a little bit about i think the the fact that he doesn't really have like a partner to play against in any of those scenes mm-hmm. any longer mm-hmm. he's sort of just a a free agent floating around mm-hmm. um and i think the movie has to leave the domestic space at some point but it just i don't think that it's at, at, at its strongest once it does mm-hmm. yeah but i think that 
like if if Beirut had been able to like devise as consistently sort of these like mm-hmm. gags or things like that, maybe mm-hmm. it could have. Like the, I mean, like this is a this is a the film where where Stevenon breaks a chair while he, while he's joking. <laughs> like it's <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> like you, you it's it you know it, it's just like the pleasures are if you if you're someone as like someone obsessed with like a particular actor like yeah it's, a, it's a yeah find it's a, a lot. feast yeah. of of like little stevenon bits for sure i'm not yes, sure it absolutely. amounts to like an entirely like successful movie that i could recommend to anyone but i am very glad to have seen it no question yes absolutely uh, same here <laughs> the next film is or actually it's sort of a program of uh, of films actually even though it's um it too too like specifically or at least supposedly advertised, but also with another short, all films, all documentaries about animals in some ways. Uh, I should mention that the that the short paired with this is the dogs by Aviva Slesson. Actually, don't know if it's a documentary or not. Uh, but the the main feature and also a NIF world premiere, one of the one of the most um, one of the most famous films in this lineup is. Gates of Heaven by Earl Morris, his debut feature and uh, sort of a watershed sort of moment in, or like, you know, sort of recognized as one of the more watershed moments in in documentary of this time and very much a, it, it's very much in his style of sort of finding bizarre, like the bizarre or the sort of the, Bizarre in a way that reflects a sort of sense of Americana, and it basically centers around two, two pet cemeteries or two pet cemetery ventures. One being run by uh, by by Mac McClure or by Floyd Mac McClure, and his after he and his sort of like very small scale, very very uh, modest venture that nevertheless gets a lot of difference a lot of different pets, a lot of different pet, uh, a lot of different uh, species, pet species uh, buried in, in, in this little plot of land that he has around ne- near his, near his house. And then this very, not necessarily corporate, but like this very successful, very wide ranging uh, memorial park, which those after the, after the land is sort of, after the business fails, the, the, the animals are sent to this, to this other other cemetery called Bubbling Well Pet Memorial Park, which is run by a sort of a, a family like his, um, John Cal Harberts and his two sons, and it's very much it's it's all basically done in the sort of Errol Morris style, straight on or nearly straight on camera camera angles. Even uh, you you don't I don't think you hear Morris's voice, but it's but you can sense him sort of sculpting these answers, getting people just to talk and just to reveal more about themselves. Maybe the best example is of this extended interview he has with this elderly woman where at one point you hear a car skidding in the background and this launches her into like a long, a, a long almost free association stream of thoughts that involves her grandson. And it's, and so I think, and I think it is definitely, I don't know if, I'm necessarily as uh, as enamored of the of the sort of Errol Morris style of this very 
stayed very very direct um documentary style but i think that it is it definitely he he's able to find some things of interest in his in his uh subjects and just the various quirks that they have like one of them is like a college graduate and he proclaims the value of this formula like this literal formula like a mathematical formula for success and he also plays the guitar and like there's this one scene there are two scenes where he plays a guitar one is he plays a recording of this very like late 60s sort of style of psychedelic guitar of just him like playing with a with a backing track and then one where he's just playing on an amp just and the you, you see him just playing in front of all these different pet graves just like <laughs> he's just playing away uh and it's and you get the sense i think it's it feels somewhat divided on whether it's trying to lampoon them or not it's i don't know if the point of view is quite established quite well enough in order to really make this as incisive as into human behavior into the nature of how these various people's uh obsession these various people's pursuits intersect quite as well as it as it wants to because i think some some of the some of the point of views some, some of the viewpoints like the manager of this rendering plant that is opposed to McClure or like these two couples who had pets who died and they're buried in bubbling well, whether I think those are maybe a bit too set in their ways to really comment on the others. But I think there are, but I think it, it, it is when it's folk, when it's focused, I think it gets at some, at some interesting things. It, it gets at some, at the way that these people behave uh, fairly well. I've not seen it. Uh, Earl Morris, <laughs> not someone I care about. I think you're the mm-hmm. way you describe his, uh, what I, his kind of like weaselly uh, perspective just grates mm-hmm. me to know. And like I, <laughs> his, his style to me is the like, anti- or the, uh, the kind of apotheosis of the kind of this like really irritating American obsession with, and I'm doing air quotes now, like ambiguity, you know, like I, I don't know how that <laughs> plays in this film because it doesn't have a, like a, a controversial subject at its center. Right, right. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just, I find him an incredibly Weasley filmmaker and I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think he, he is, re, re, he, he for a long time has sort of like crested on his reputation as someone who mm. I think plays games with his audience uh and to me like that's a vice and not a virtue in his case Mm -hmm. because they don't they're not meaningfully telling us anything about he has no i guess i don't think he has much perspective on the things that he treats in his films and i i don't know i Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i've just never found his his project one that uh seems all that worthwhile to me Yeah, I think maybe this one doesn't go into that, lean to that as heavily, and so I think maybe it. I, I think it's like it's, it's quite solid, but I don't think it necessarily goes much more into like it. It doesn't delve as deeply as it as like as I feel it should, but. You know there 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 is a certain pleasure just to just to watching these people just talk, in, talk candidly in 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 their own way. The other film on this program was 
another short which was unavailable called Manimals, directed by Robin Lehman. And it seems like it sort of deals with the ownership of exotic animals by city dwellers. And this is all from the YouTube description of a clip that I found. And it deals with like the contradiction between romantic fantasies of the owner and broken creatures. And like just the general consumerism, consumer's attitude towards nature that these people bring. Uh, I think Lehman was a sort of cinematographer for a lot for a number of documentaries, so probably very. It seemed very verite from the short clip that I saw, but uh, obviously not totally certain about that. The next film was also un- unavailable for us, though. If though I might I might be mistaken on exactly what this is, but it but I'm pretty sure like that's sort of, the sort of nature of it. But it's Elective Affinities by Gianni Amico, which officially makes him four for four on films in NIF, which are were unavailable <laughs> really? wow. for us to That's watch, which is unfortunate. Yes, it's unfortunate, especially because he worked in like different veins, like Tropics, I think, is this sort of... I, I, I think Tropics has Laod in yeah. it. Uh, it could be mistaken. Uh, Trapeci, and then also like notes on a film on jazz, which is a documentary. But this one, if I'm not mistaken, is actually sort of a TV minis- miniseries. Um, and three episodes of 60 minutes each so 100 so a full three hours uh which and it seems to be an adaptation of the goethe novel uh but i don't really know much beyond it i think i think it's actually up on youtube but without subtitles so yeah so um you know i'm have no I have no f- framework whatsoever for considering Amico so you know it, but but it's interesting like it's sort of an interesting very long inclusion in the middle of, of sub, uh, a bunch of films which are on the shorter side at least for a festival um, so yeah in- an interesting inclusion definitely The next film in this NIF was The Shout by Jerzy Skolomowski. This is actually not his first English language film. This, um, for some reason, his Deep End, which is perhaps his best known film from 1970, wasn't in NIF, but this is his first English film in NIF. And it's very much, it's, it's sort of, it's definitely playing into the horror genre of sorts, though I think it's, though it's maybe more trying to capture the the sort of feeling of it rather than actually embodying the sort of normal 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 horror tropes and it's basically this essentially a three-hander between uh 
between Alan Bates, who plays Crossley, who's this strange, this strange, mysterious, uh, mysterious man who's who enters the home of Anthony and Rachel, played by a very young John Hurt and Susanna York. Uh, Susanna York, of course, was in Images from Altman, which is another, which is probably the first genre film that we actually covered in NIF, um, and it's basically sort of dealing actually remind me of of all things the servants the uh the the losi film in terms of how it's how this one man ingratiates himself and and sort of warps the mental the mental states of the house's occupants and it's it centers on crossley's ability to because he he, he spent 18 years in the outback in australia and and he says that he can. He's learned from a Aboriginal shaman how to produce this thing called the terror shout, which kills anything that that hears it, basically. And if, if this only really ap- appears a few times, but it's sort of central to his demeanor, his sort of, and and more importantly, the, his experience of living of living in the outback. And uh, he fathered many children, but. As per the society's rules, he he killed them within the first killed all of them in the first their first few weeks of living, because he didn't want to bring any children into that in, into the world, and it's and it's it's strange because it doesn't really necessarily fit very well into the previous Skolomowski films that we had on the actually previous four films that we had on. Um, in NIF from him but it and it, the directorial style doesn't really match all that well either because it's more restrained in a certain way though I think that he's able to make it consistently visually interesting to me in this sort of like glazed over sl- like blandly sinister way of, of filming this small this small English countryside town in which uh, in which Anthony and Rachel live in so it's it's a, it's a strange film, but like for for some reason it it worked for me. It's like sometimes it gets a little bit too overheated or too, and especially the the, the frame story in which Crossley is telling the story to a young Tim Curry of all people over this cricket match at this insane asylum. Uh, I don't think, even though I think he's able to cut cut back to the frame story at interesting times, I don't. I just don't think that the that the uh, structure of it necessarily informs the th- the proceedings all that well, but I think it, it is interesting. Like it is able to capture that atmosphere, the abs- atmosphere of a strange dread that John Hurt is feeling uh, at all times, basically. So it, it it worked for me, but it's yeah, it's 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 a strange one. I mean, it it's a movie that is like really watchable and sort of compelling on a minute to minute basis that I find totally confused and, and vapid. Like I don't, this movie, this movie has nothing going on under the hood. Like I'm pretty sure like there's like, why does this movie and why were these talents marshaled to make it? Like I, I just don't, I don't understand the purpose of any of what happens in this film. Like, on the one hand, it's like it's the kind of movie that basically I would expect some Upper East Side professor to go see in a Woody Allen movie. 
Like it, it's <laughs> the like it's the kind of thing that is multivalent in a the cheapest possible way. Where like whatever reading you want to apply to it, like you can probably construct something mm-hmm. out of the film to support your reading because. I don't think the movie has anything going on beyond its interest in like the surface possibilities of this story. And like the surface stuff is, is like I said, relatively compelling. Like it's not a boring movie by any means, but it just doesn't, like, I just don't know why, why the story, why Skolomowski is interested in it. Like, I just, I don't get it. Like, on the, is it meant to be a movie in which, the kind of like, I, this, like even just trying to articulate a reading of the film like frustrates the attempt to come up with to pin it down on anything mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. okay so is a movie about the kind of like return of like or, or kind of exercising vengeance on this like banal white couple uh in colonial like this colonial country uh from the kind of like oppressed aboriginal class that was on the receiving end of british colonialism like that seems like one way into the movie from a sort of like metaphorical lens but then why is that delivered via alan bates and how seriously are we supposed to take his descriptions of aboriginal culture which Mm -hmm. like seem themselves like informed by a kind of like colonialist lens like i don't know i and that's just like one possible read on the movie, but I feel like any any attempt to read the movie like comes up with all these like frustrating dead ends, which I'm sure for the people who really would advocate for it is it's virtue that it's like you can't pin it down. But to mm-hmm. me, it just it just made the whole exercise feel quite pointless because at the end of the day, it's like a lot of talent marshaled for something that uh, just seems kind of meaningless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, I wouldn't necessarily say, like, I fully defend it, but I think that it is, I think I find just the way in which, like, maybe the most recurring gesture in it is just, it seems like Crossley has left, that, uh, and then sudden, and then without warning, he just seems to, like, walk back into the house or walk into a room, and the characters don't really acknowledge it. Like, that sort of thing, I think, really goes a long way in in establishing the the strange dread that his character brings. Uh, also, of course, just the way he looks like this very bearded, very foreboding eyes, like well, the, dressed in black. The, yeah. the comparison to the servant is an interesting one because the servant has a somewhat similar setup in that you have mm-hmm. a, a person who becomes like sort of an intractable presence in someone's household and like upsets and destroys the household by virtue of basically mm-hmm. just not leaving. And yet the whole point of the servant is that it's about the the household. Like mm-hmm. it's sort of irrelevant that, or how do I want to put this? That the, the whole point, the whole point of the servant is that because he stays, it reveals something about the inhabitants of this house. Like they are the subject of the film's gaze and its critique. And I'm not mm-hmm. really sure you can say the same thing about the John Hurt and Susanna York characters here. Like I don't, mm-hmm. Like, does the movie have a perspective on them or like why or what is revealed about them by virtue of 
Bates showing up and like refusing to leave their house. Like other than the fact that they have a sort of like unsatisfying sexual relationship, which like just doesn't seem that interesting to me. Like what else mm-hmm. does he reveal about them? Yeah, I mean like, it's. I think maybe it's more about the general. Like maybe the gaze is just more about the general sort of interactions of country life. So I don't think it necessarily delves into that all that much either. No, yeah, it doesn't yeah, really. Yeah, like like it it happens in fits and starts basically, and and a lot like and we should mention this is also a very short film. Uh, it like doesn't even it, it's eighty minutes basically. Mm-hmm. So it and but I think that the. I do think that the meat of the film, whatever it is, if you can call it meat, is just sort of lies in the in the subliminal nature that is created by like this editing of of, of just the way in which he uh Skolomowski, like intercuts these like he cuts to he cuts forward in time very abruptly, like and sometimes it's very abrupt, like where where John Hurt is sitting in sitting at his uh at his place as a church organist and then suddenly he's running in the in in the sand dunes mm-hmm. uh like and how he seems to return again to and again to it it's i, I guess yeah I, I don't really know if there's necessarily a intellectual sort of structuring element to the film but it's just the way in which it's it, like the, the the intentions of the film are evoked in in mood and atmosphere and in like these very little details, like the like one of the first things that Bates does when he enters the house is squash a wasp against the glass, uh, and 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 it's done like a very visceral fashion. And there's also just the entire John Hurt's main interest is doing this experimental music, which is all via like little uh, like which is all like sound effects that are made in electronic so it involves like like playing wine glasses or like blowing a cigarette over a over a metal tube and i i think i just find that sort of strange like the inexplicable nature of a lot of this fairly compelling yeah um I don't know. It, you, yeah. Not yeah. that you have to defend the film. I just, I, I genuinely, <laughs> at the end of the when I when it concluded, I was just like, why, like, why did I just watch any of that? Like, and the and this, <laughs> it is decidedly less than the sum of its parts. Like, the parts are mm-hmm. are pretty compelling, but like, I just mm-hmm. it doesn't. Uh, I just don't really understand. Like, it it when everything comes together, it at the end just feels kind of like a parody of this kind of like heavy like mood mood heavy art house mm-hmm. kind of thing and mm-hmm. i think not really feeling the like dread personally like again the movie's compelling mm-hmm. enough that i wasn't like disinterested but i also didn't feel like overwhelmed by the sense of dread like i do watching mm-hmm. like a david lynch movie or something mm-hmm. it was kind of at the end like okay well mm-hmm. why yeah yeah i mean it's it's yeah it's difficult to really articulate beyond beyond like just that that sort of feeling right. uh for me but yeah it's a strange one I, I i it's strange to see it well besides the fact that it did tie for the grand prix at can which is probably the main reason why it made it in yeah the next film a decidedly different film for in in every conceivable way from basically any of these films but also its directors most of its directors other films and one of the very best films that we've ever covered on on this podcast 
is Percival the Galois, Percival the Walsh, basically, directed by Eric Romare. And this is absolutely extraordinary. It's it's a very it's designed very much as a an incredibly faithful adaptation of the epic poem by Christian de Troyes, which was actually left incomplete, but, but this is not acknowledged in the film. The film just sort of ends in a way that I find completely completely compelling, completely truthful to what the film is trying to accomplish. And most of the film is done in the very particular meter of this sort of 12th century sort of uh, medieval medieval epic poem, and much of it is set to music. This is basically a musical, and it, as per the title, it basically covers the sort of the the educa- uh, education almost seems like the right word, the education of the of the knight Percival from when he first discovers the discovers the the thrills of knighthood to him maturing and him encountering but not finding the uh what is proper what's what's known later on as the holy grail and his sort of interactions with king arthur and also it has time in this 140 minute film to throw in an entire secondary story dealing with uh, the the Knight Gavan and also concluding with a with a passion play starring the starring Percival uh, who's played by Fabrice Lucchini as as Jesus Christ himself and all of this is done in this in this this extravagantly theatrical setting where where it's heavily influenced by sort of I guess theater theater in the, theater in the round sort of where it takes place entirely or pretty much entirely on this single, single, single stage, uh, where the entire set is is it, it it's basically like it represents with the, with the smallest means possible the most the the most authentic means possible to the time period and thus entirely unconvincing in a in a more gen in a more traditional sense of like renditions of say like a castle is represented by this very small like very small scale very uh very artificial artificial model um or or trees are represented or forests are represented by like three or four trees and yet the effects and you can and and you clearly see that even though there are a bunch of different settings in the film and Percival himself covers a lot of different uh, different area, uh, like he travels to a lot of different locations as per his sort of wandering. That is one of the essential parts of his quest. It's all of these are are represented on the same sort of stage, and even when it turns to winter, it's just everything is covered in white. And yet, all of this together combines to form just something so utterly communal, something so utterly uh, suffused with a kind of faith that is. It's never the film is even though Percival himself is naive very frequently the film isn't it's always clear-eyed and yet it has this just profound belief in the power of these very archaic very medieval means it, it fully believes that those can create something that is that it is its own world that exists in something that it's neither it doesn't really feel like it belongs to any particular time partly because some you can just because Romer's 
actual direction of it, actual movement of the camera, how he's able to just su suggest perspective with a simple dolly move to the right or or a pan. It all of these combine to to form something that is both totally unconvincing, totally uh, totally artificial, and yet so something that feels so so involving so so utterly lacking in distance like it's just everything feels immediate everything feels present and it just feels so celebratory which is a strange word to 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 express but it it feels so utterly in in love with its participants with the with the time period, with the possibilities of this verse, and with its particular mode of address, I, I think I thought I was just—it's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the one masterpiece in this uh, in this lineup. <laughs> uh, possibly Rummer's greatest achievement. I I think uh, I'll probably forever have uh, uh, a a greater level of affection for the Green Ray for a number of personal reasons, I guess, but. Mm -hmm. um, I would be hard pressed to, I think, name another Romer film that is. Um, I, I think Romer is. He's interested in a certain mode of thinking that is uh, alien from the present. And though his mm -hmm. films are his contemporary set films are like very taken with um, like the, the modes and the styles and the fashion of the present. I think he is attempting in, in many of his films to articulate a mode of thinking that is, that is not really uh, common in the present. And I think what you see in the history films, and I think Percival is the mm -hmm. most successful of them is uh, an attempt to, basically use the uh historical form of the kind of the, or to use the form of the history film uh, the costume drama uh mm -hmm. to basically demonstrate how one might use cinema to think in a way that is like historically different from the present in which the film is made mm -hmm. by which i mean mm -hmm. percival is a film that not only attempts to reproduce the iconography of the medieval period, but I think mm -hmm. he's genuinely attempting to move and think as a work of art, as a film, as if it were being thought and conceived in the medieval period. Like the movie's mm -hmm. ideology, its approach to people and, uh, you know, its approach to story it seems to me to spring up from a medieval mind. And it's, mm -hmm. I think quite the accomplishment to be able to, as a filmmaker, basically will oneself into thinking in a way that is so alien from the contemporary moment in which the filmmaker finds himself. And I think each mm -hmm. of Romer's history films do this to a certain extent. I mean, I think um, uh, the Marquesa of O is really attempting to, to sort of replicate the ideology, the, the prompt, like the, uh, 
sort of predominant ideological modes of the period in which that film takes place. I think mm-hmm. that's also true of The Lady and the Duke and maybe to a slightly lesser extent of Triple Agent, which is not among my favorite Roma films, but I think <laughs> is, is sort of attempting something maybe similar. I think you definitely see it in his last um, last film, which is also a history film, Australian Celadon, and that one has the the sort of added wrinkle of actually being a historical pil- historical period filtered through another historical period. And, mm-hmm. you know, in that film, Romer is, I think, able to convey precisely that, that you're seeing a historical period through another historical period, which is, I don't know, I find that a, a quite a lofty task to set oneself uh, to achieve. And in any case, I think Percival is, um, is a truly medieval film. Like, I, I think you could, you could take Percival and you could show it to a medieval peasant in who's who is a cultured to you know traveling passion plays um and uh they would get this movie like mm-hmm. i don't think you could do that for for much of uh you know contemporary cinema uh but or of, of you know uh, contemporary with romer his uh, peers mm-hmm. but i mean i really do think you could basically just teleport first of all back in time and uh you know people in the the 13th century would understand this movie Right. It's yeah, and we like we've had this with many of the many of the best films that are that are set in a historical period for uh, for this podcast, where it's they don't they feel like they're approaching it with they're approaching they're taking the the period as a a priori of sorts. Mm-hmm. They're taking it as very much this is this is the milieu, this is the time period, this is the society that we're dealing with. And let's represent that with the most, uh, with the, with the most faithful means possible. And of course, his previous film, uh, as you said, Marquez of O, like it deals with that definitely. But it's rendered to an even even greater extreme because of all of the, what do you what, a lesser filmmaker would consider constraints. Romer sees as virtues. Mm-hmm. They like th- these are absolutely indispensable to his um, conception of the, of of these characters of the of the ways in which they operate because of because the medieval verse the the music the very like the the instruments are all they like they are all emblematic of a certain thing like they exist not only in their in their iconography but also the associations that they bring with it and this is apparent like from the very beginning because it opens with the musicians and with people producing bird song on these little uh, on like little instruments or like little tchotchkes or something like that and then you see press and then you see Percival um just riding along and you also and also very worth noting that the most of the char- pretty much all the characters at for much of their performance they narrate their own actions and they they narrate their dialogue as well as the chorus also appearing, like some of the members, they appear in different roles, they appear and they narrate in the similar fashion. And it's always inflected in a certain way. Like sometimes it feels like they're almost gossiping. Like the, just the way, just by the way that they say the, say the meter while still remaining in it or, and like their body, their body language. And, and in that, I think that it has its own, like it lends its own inflection that might not be, originally part of the of the of the epic poem but i think that it's i think that's part of what's so great about it, is that it's also I, I read in the sort of romer 
biography that he that some of the parts like the parts that he really uh excised were the ones that were more explicitly supernatural sure. like there and there were more like of like he was like pagan iconography and because he wanted to make it very clearly centered on the sort of uh on the on the christian on the christian ideology christian iconography a christian um morality that the that the that the um film expresses and it's and i think that it what's just so wonderful is that all these things are taken so blatantly at face value and sometimes this can make them make the elements incredibly funny i think among other things this is a very funny Mm -hmm. film uh which is i think entirely to its benefit like the entire basically the entire gavan uh subplot or like which comes which takes up a good 20 minutes or so and comes right before the the sort of emotional climax of the of the film where he's it's basically like a comedy of of like the like basically the i mean there's a a character who's literally named uh the the girl with small sleeves the damsel with small sleeves (laughs) and and that's her entire that's her sort of and her entire demeanor and sort of like her how she's sort of basically like a sort of a bratty kid and yet it's and and yet like it's so fully incorporated into the into the rest of the proceedings or just the entire first interaction percival has with a knight where he asks what what is this and it's the the shield what's this and it's the chainmail what's this and it's the it's the lance and you see the knight like growing more and more frustrated but because everyone is 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 involved in this society everyone is fully aware of the rules of etiquette it all it all it unites it all and and forces them to act in a particular way and i think that a lot of the film like the film is basically about the the codes of living the codes of living under this particular society Mm -hmm. and i find just the way in which he's able to show his love for it how with just this pan or this this track along this series of stalls where where wares are being are being manufactured and sold in authentic in authentic uh in an authentic manner i think is so so indicative of that i think that the that the way just that they're in in which they're speaking like the 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 way in which they uh, narrate their own actions like it almost it 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 conjures up this almost uh as as if they're looking back on their actions as they're as they're acting upon it in a, in a way that I can't explain my love for like it, it's hard to put into words why that feels I think it's just because of it's so artificial because it's so unlike normal human interaction and like maybe that signals something totally out of time about it like the 12th century society is something that i cannot understand but i think the power of this film is that it can it can make me accept it i guess i would struggle to articulate why that's the case. I also don't have the benefit of having seen it recently. It's been a number of years since mm-hmm. I last watched it, but uh, 
the passion play that concludes first of all is mm-hmm. i mean literally the only time in my entire life i think that i've ever been like moved by the passion story and mm-hmm. you know uh like autobiographical detail i think my entire life at catholic school like i've you know i've heard it a few <laughs> times and like yes. you know I don't know why in this case and given the kind of mode of address, which is very theatrical and um, again, artificial, like why this is the one that I find so moving, but um, I don't know. It's a very mysterious film to me on some level. I mean, like I said, I I think it's achievements as as a kind of attempt to recreate the, the modes of address and ways of thinking of the period are, um, are apparent enough but why i find it such a moving film i you know i'm sort of at a loss to explain so i don't know that i have a whole lot else to say because uh it is just kind of one of those works of art that for me stands a little bit as a mystery um Mm -hmm. and i don't know that i can't say that about a lot of movies so Mm -hmm. that's something uh in and of itself yeah, I mean it's it's very like I I it's definitely like for for the passion play like what's part part of what's so like it it's it takes the theatricality to an entire like to yet another level somehow like it just ma- renders it, it because because it's well it's like it's like a theater space within the theater space of the film because right. I think it's right. entirely plausible because if I remember correctly it just sort of transitions to that like I don't recall that, yeah it moves directly yeah, yeah I don't recall there's like a, a setup for it or anything but I, you get the sense that it could be you could read it as a as a passion play occurring within the diegesis of the film in a certain mm-hmm. sense like that the mm-hmm. the intended audience is is like a peasant at a passion play show in mm-hmm. that period um, yeah 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 it's like it takes it to another level and, and there's an additional uh, additional element where the where it's all conveyed through the singing of the of the chorus of for members of the chorus who are singing i think in latin so that in and of itself creates yet another constraint yeah well and i also was just thinking yeah. like i know i literally think this is i'm just thinking out loud here but I, like as you were saying that the film is about kind of the education of of Percival, like it also seems to me very much like the film that maybe most reveals Romer's own background as a teacher mm-hmm. himself. Like mm-hmm. there is something about the film that again is, is perfectly congruent with its, um, its chosen mode of address that is kind of pitched as, as an almost a pedagogy in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I never really thought about that, but the, I don't think Romer's background as a teacher gets discussed much in his, in his uh, work as a filmmaker, but I do wonder if, if this is a film that engages maybe some of those more pedagogical instincts in a way. Yeah. And I think he actually, he taught this, this text, I think before oh, like, probably, he, he yeah. staged it with some of his, it's been a while since I read the Romer yeah. bio, but that would yeah. surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. And so it's, it's the kind of film where the aesthetic is so complete, where the intent is so brilliantly open that it, then leads to this whole problem of expressing exactly, like picking at exactly, like you can pinpoint the various elements, you can pinpoint the the very, like the pastel nature of a lot of it, how like it's just so visually splendorous and how the acting is, it's so, like, like Lucini's performance in this is 
incredible mm-hmm. because it's so open, because it's so naive, and yet Romer's never, n- never unaware of how it can be damaging. Like the entire, the entire crux of the film rests on him listening too eagerly to the advice of his mother and the worthy man that he meets. That it, that it leads him to lose the grail, leads him to wander, um, wander for years, and like, and you can pinpoint that. You can pinpoint the the v- little snippet of animation that includes. Yeah, which is astonishing. Like with these birds just flying in the sky, and then one is wounded, attacked by a hawk or something, and you see three drops of blood that then fade into uh, into his lover Blanche Fleur, and even yeah, and even that, and that entire s- sequence with her earlier in the film, where it's just, it's both very chaste and very erotic at the same time, where like just just the the way in which they engage with, with each other is both tentative but also it also carries its own uh own charge to it like you can just point to all of these little things and yet the, the sum is even greater than those parts like it all becomes unified in a way that's that seems almost impossible because there are so many different elements because there's this these two stories right in the in the second half of the film that completely upends the traditional narrative progression and yet because that's in the, in the poem because Romer deemed it vital to the to uh, to not only keeping faithful to the poem but also uh, illustrating in some way Percival's Percival's development it's yeah it, it's the kind of film where you where it's just there's so many things that are inexplicable about it that it all feels right and it all feels true and all feels faithful and it yeah i I can't say enough about it it's just absolutely absolutely gorgeous absolutely beautiful and a masterpiece yes pretty good pretty good movie (laughs) this and spies are just top or most of the (laughs) popular list yeah it's yeah it yeah absolutely incredible the next film is actually a program of two Scorsese-related sort of uh, short documentaries. The, the first one is a feature, the second one is not. The feature is by is a another hour-long documentary by Martin Scorsese, American Boy, a profile of Stephen Prince, and this is the it's sort of basically just a one a one night spent with spent with Stephen Prince who probably best known for appearing as the uh as the gun dealer easy andy and taxi driver uh and basically just listening to him tell stories and sort of in the sort of in the vein of his previous italian american from 1974 uh, if though i think this though this one maybe not quite as successful but I, it's still a good time certainly for me uh, at least it, it and it's Basically, the structure of it is after sort of an opening where they're waiting for Stephen Prince to arrive, and then once he arrives, he immediately enters in a impromptu wrestling match between uh, the owner of the house, George Mamoli. It's the rest is basically these discrete sections of, and stories. Like each one is a each section is a story that he tells, and they're all titled with they're all given short titles, like. 
Coco Jacks or something like, or or Dad or my aunts or something like that, where and they're all layered over home movie footage. The rest of the film mostly is shoes dance, mostly just the sort of present tense, present tense storytelling of Prince. And I think that the sort of that explicit stylistic structure is maybe the is probably the greatest hindrance to the film simply because it doesn't necessarily allow it to flow in a very organic like the f flow in a very organic way i think that the probably just the presence the sort of wiry energy of prince and the sort of outrageous stories that he tells is would probably have been enough so i, I don't know why scorsese went with that especially because italian american relied on that sort of flow of conversation and the and and especially notably Scorsese, Scorsese even though he's on screen you can occasionally hear him uh, hear him ask questions or something like that he's not actually in it all that much so whereas in Italian American obviously his presence was central so it doesn't necessarily it, it doesn't necessarily quite have that same back and forth that the that or, or the same sort of involvement of other characters or other people as much as um, Italian American. That being said, there is just this nice handheld hazy sort of atmosphere to it, and and there's a nice sort of contrast between the very loose, very very uh, very casual, um, uh, casual sort of way in which the characters interact that that I liked, and that and like there's a contrast between that and the sometimes violent, sometimes like often drug field sort of uh, stories that he tells. And like two, two notable ones, one um, one of sticking a gel into a woman's heart, obviously recreating Pulp Fiction. Another of him uh, shooting a man who tried to rob his, uh, rob his gas, the gas station he was working at and, and attack him was adapted into Waking Life. But, and so you have those, and, and you get the sense that those are obviously uh, very wild, but in the context of the film, it it, it works in in an interesting way. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily much more than that, but it's uh, I don't think it's anything more than that. But I think it's for what it is. It's it's very it has a nice uh, a nice feel to it. It's fine. I didn't hate watching it. It. Uh, <laughs> So my read on why it has the kind of uninteresting structural conceit of these like discrete sections is I actually don't think Stephen Prince is a very interesting storyteller. Like I, <laughs> I don't really think that he's like some amazing raconteur. And given the what I had read about this film before seeing it, that he was like some kind of like you know totally magnetic raconteur, I was like kind of surprised at the banality of his stories. And I don't know, the, it doesn't feel any different to me than just like hanging out with a marginally more interesting person at like some random <laughs> dinner party, you know, like, which is fine. That's not unpleasant. But, you know, yeah. I, I don't know why really this person is worthy of uh, a document like this. Um, also, I think we're just kind of more familiar with this like confessional address mode now mm -hmm. uh, than we were probably at the time not that there weren't other things before this i don't think scorsese was the innovator here the 
version of it I watched had an intro with Scorsese where he talked about Shirley Clark's portrait of Jason as like a major yeah, influence. Which is a much better film. Yeah, and, and so it's not like Scorsese was the first person to do this, but I also I also feel like this kind of personal mode of address is just like permeates our culture now. I mean, we're doing a five-hour podcast or whatever that <laughs> presumably someone somewhere is going to like consent to listen to of their own accord. Like, I, you know, <laughs> this kind of like off-the-cuff address of mm-hmm. this sort of average person narrating stories of his life. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I encounter it literally everywhere now. And so mm-hmm. um, I, I was expecting, given its reputation, to like just be really – for for Stephen Prince to be a really electric presence. And it's not that he's boring. Mm-hmm. It's just that I don't know that he's yeah. like that much more interesting than, you know, someone who's marginally not boring, <laughs> if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah. It's fine. I didn't – just like watching it, I just, it's kind of a nothing movie in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's, it's very much for the most part does what it sets out to do. Uh, you know, like it's just very loose and hangout sort of vibe. The next, uh, the, the short on this program was a strange, a strange sort of inclusion. This is movies are my life, which is, seems to be the only, film directed by Peter Hayden, who apparently helps distribute Mean Streets in Britain. And it's sort of a profile of Scorsese that was made around the time of New York, New York, and features interviews with Robert De Niro, Liza Liza Minnelli, John Cassavetes, Jodie Foster, Stephen Prince, uh, Brian De Palma, and Jay Cox, uh, presumably maybe some others as well. I don't really know much else about it, but probably just... I don't know why it's, especially it's being made this early in his career, uh, but um, pr- presumably Hayden was friends with him, so he decided to make it. Uh, yeah, don't, don't, know, don't know anything else. I mean, it. intriguing that, uh, I guess, by this point, Sir says he was already like a a sufficiently well-known presence mm-hmm. to warrant mm-hmm. and get a uh, documentary on him and then have that included in NIF, I, I guess. Yeah. I, I also would have not guess that this early he would have been quite that much of a subject in his own right, but mm-hmm. I guess he was. Yeah. Yeah. And only five years after Mean Streets, after all. Yeah. Maybe presumably just because they needed something to not make it. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Long yeah. <laughs> yeah. The next is, the next film is a retrospective, The Miracle of the Wolves, a silent film from 1924, directed by Raymond Bernard, who was, I think, most more commonly an actor, but I think this was uh, one of his more recognized directorial efforts. And it's a chronicle of the times of Louis Eleventh. So basically dealing with sort of the, uh, right after end, the end of the Hundred Years' War, him tr- his efforts to sort of restore the states of, of great lords to the states and the land. And the opening text specifies that it's trying to do this by means of a romantic fiction uh, set in authentic decor. And it's sort of the, the main characters besides Louis XI are the, are what they call divided France incarnated in Jean Fouquet and Robert Cotereau, who uh, are on opposite sides of this sort of divide and the, and sort of, they, they aren't really, it's just, very central to it and the film sort of it, it's not it's over two hours and not it's not very engaging for the most part and it's 
That's your face. It's one of the most boring things I've ever seen. How far I, did okay. you get? I almost never quit on a movie. Like that happens mm. like once a decade, basically. <laughs> and I got forty-five minutes into this movie, and I absolutely could not continue with it. <laughs> it was I could feel death's cold grip inching closer with every passing second my life slipping away grains of sand through time i just i couldn't it was the most excruciating movie i've watched in a long time and i don't know why i mean i kind of like actually was i don't know i would say excited to see this movie i didn't really know anything about it but i was was sort of Mm -hmm. intrigued by it like okay uh, uh historical like french silent like that seems like something i could i could jam with but um wow uh i've never seen uh so many i only watched 45 minutes of this movie and i'm pretty sure in those 45 minutes i read more inner titles than in yeah. any other silent film i've seen to completion this is the talkiest <laughs> silent film i have ever seen like it opens with blocks of text that like are on screen for like minutes at a time because there's so much <laughs> historical information that is being dumped upon the viewer. And then it's like literally introducing people that aren't as far as I can tell, even characters in the movie, like it's talking about historical personages that don't even show up and just like providing all of this historical background. And I mean, seriously, for the first like 10 minutes of the movie, I think there's probably like at least 50% of the runtime is intertitles. <laughs> and they are the dullest like history lesson intertitles imaginable um yeah uh, it was excruciating i don't know what else to say i i found it interesting and retroactively uh quite clear that i should have had my hackles up that the credits uh apart from what you just said of like saying that it wants to be you know done in the historical decor or whatever uh indicate mm-hmm. that bernard served as both art director and director uh-huh. Which I had never seen that before. Like I was like, oh, that's an that's a unique credit. Like you know, producer, director, writer, director, like art director, director. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's cool. And then as the movie went on, I was like, this is clearly the problem. Like this man just like wanted to put some costumes together, and there is just no interest, at least in the forty five minutes that I watched, in creating any kind of energy whatsoever. That's, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to say that. I think I think it's serviceable. I think it's you know like it's it's just like very much enamored with this historical setting, like in a way that completely opposite from Percival, where it, it doesn't it, like it feels like it's just trying to, it you know it, it's just there. Like sometimes there's some you know evocative shots, like there's some use of nice use of shadow and whatnot, but it's it. I think the the bulk. You, were you like were you still in the sort of mystery play segment by like, yeah when you, when yeah you left? the mystery yeah. play is when i was like i'm out of here well and this is quite funny too yeah. like I, I didn't even think about the comparison to percival which is like obviously in the same festival mm-hmm. like talk about like two vastly different approaches to a similar <laughs> concept like percival is itself like basically a mystery play for the entire runtime and this movie like mm. can't even make like 10 minutes of it interesting <laughs> i mean yeah it's just it's just like it's sort of supposed to be like the fall of the fall of Adam. It seems to be, but it's like just these random like devil, huge monster heads sort of things, like in a way that doesn't feel like it feels completely incoherent. And also, this is juxtaposed with like with the development of the the essentially the 
incoming war between Louis the Eleventh and the uh, and Charles Charles the Bold, and it just doesn't really like there there isn't really a, any meaningful juxtaposition to it. That being said, I do think that the film picks up a little bit after, like soon after that, I'll because. Take your word for it. Okay. Yes, <laughs> but the uh, there are two sort of pitched battle sequences. You know, like it's very like Bernard is probably at his best when it's just like uh, just throwing an, an enormous amount of extras just at each other, and there's some like frenetic handheld that that you know like feels like a sort of attempt to do Napoleon of avant Lentra. Uh but the 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 um, Abel Guns film. Yeah. Oh, I was just like, why was this program? Like, I don't who know. chose this? Yeah, it's it's a strange. I don't know. Uh, like, obviously, I don't. No, I know. The, I, this is a rhetorical the, question, the but I mean, I'm telling you, if I was like <laughs> bought a ticket to go yeah. see this like restoration at NIF, and this was included in the main lineup, mm. I would have. I just can't believe it. It's truly one of the most excruciating yeah. things I've ever seen. I. <laughs> yeah, uh, I will say the actual miracle of the wolves is like probably more engaging than the rest of the film put together because so so the miracle of the wolves is essentially John is sent to deliver a message and she's cornered by a bunch of of soldiers in the middle of like this ice field and there is this enormous pack of there's this large pack of wolves that comes out and does not attack her but then once the soldiers try to try to close in on her they they are attacked and this is rendered over like a five minute stretch where it's just all of these like it it looks extremely convincing just that these wolves attacked the people like it's like plenty of wolves around uh, uh jaws around necks around wrists like at one point the these two, uh, a wolf and a man, roll down a hill and crash into a, a frozen lake, which breaks, and then both are drenched in the water. You know, and so, you know, there's there's very very short periods of uh, of interest in this, and you know, like just just the spec. There there is a certain spectacle to, to just seeing for the last thirty minutes, just an entire castle get besieged and attacked. Um, Though the ending itself, which feels pretty hokey in comparison, like it, and it returns to Louis the Eleventh, even though he does nothing for basically half the film, he just like stays shut up in his uh, castle. So yeah, it's it, it's you know it's there. Thrilling. Uh, okay, the last film <laughs> uh, at at NIF uh, for this uh, festival, the closing night film, uh, was Claude Chabrol's Violette. Uh, which also goes by the title of her full name, which is Fillette Nozier, Nozier, I think. Yeah. 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 Uh, mm-hmm. This is uh, a film uh, that stars Isabelle Huppert uh, that is based mm-hmm. on the real-life story of a woman uh, or a girl uh, who basically poisoned and killed her own parents um, or one of them anyways, attempted to uh, poison and mm-hmm. kill uh, her parents and, and managed to kill her father um, in uh, 20s France, I believe. Is it 20s or the teens? Yeah. Or 30s. 30s. Okay. It seems like, 30s. Yeah, oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, in the, very, very much also in the run-up to uh, to. That's true. There is some, yeah, that's true. Like there is some of that margin. margins. Okay. 
yeah very early on uh and uh so the film is basically tracing uh the life of this girl up to the point uh that she attempts to uh kill her family and succeeds in killing her father uh and then uh the sort of legal fallout after that um it's a film that i think is uh a little too congenial too well suited to Chabrol's interests in a way. Uh, it's not that it doesn't work. Like the movie is, is pretty good. And I think it actually is sort of starting to inaugurate some of the stylistic uh, choices that will dominate much of Chabrol's output thereafter. And so is an important movie, I think in his development as a filmmaker, but I think because it's based on this real life story and there's a certain fidelity to the milieu in which uh, this takes place, uh, this very cramped uh, apartment that uh, Violette lives in with uh, her parents uh, and her mom is played by uh, Chabrol's, I think at this point, ex-wife um, and frequent actress Stefana Drawn. Um, mm-hmm. And... I think that what the movie is missing for me is the kind of like the delectability factor of Chabrol. Mm -hmm. Like I think ugliness is critical to the Chabrol film and Chabrol aesthetic. Like if you can't uh, groove with Chabrol's taste for ugliness, then you just like, you can't groove with Chabrol. You have to find Mm -hmm. the uh, like bourgeois, uh, like frilly, like bourgeois, like, chief sort of aesthetic that is quite apparently ugly, like kind of secretly comforting and appealing because Chabrol does, Mm -hmm. uh, for Mm -hmm. those movies to be pleasurable. (laughs) And that's why I find so many of Chabrol's movies so weirdly perversely comforting, despite the fact that they're, you know, filled with like murder and suicide and whatever. Um, and this one, I, I think it lacks that because I think Chabrol has to treat the space of her family life with a little bit more contempt. And it's not that he doesn't treat other mm. bourgeois like situations in his, in his films with contempt. They're often dripping with contempt, but there's also this like flip side kind of attraction to it. And it's that, that attraction to the milieu that I think is, is basically missing from this film and makes it feel a little lopsided such that sh- I don't really have the like Chabrolian perspective on the events. Um, which is then doubled by the fact that Huppert, who's very young here, is already playing her like mm. typical type, which is the kind of like impenetrable, cold, like psychologically mm-hmm. obtuse, um, you know, person who who acts in such a way that we can't really pin down her psychology. And so, again, I, I think the film is, is is pretty good and 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 moves pretty well, but it just seems to be not as fun as a, as a Chabrol film should be. And I think he just isn't having as much fun himself as he, as he might. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think I, well, I took to it more than you, but I think it's, it's all, it's the, the film is basically all about the sort of, I think it's also, it's, it's all surface basically. Yeah. It's all about the sort of surfaces that, that Violette wants to inhabit and because the the one of the key things is that her that Stefano Drawn uh, plays German doesn't want her to 
like she she tries to shelter her as much as possible. She like tries to ensure that she's exposed those little uh, like little of the out basically the outside world as if you can put it that way as possible. And so Violette, she every time she goes out, she basically goes downstairs to like a maid's closet or something like that and changes into this this very this very elegant get up and puts on lipstick and so on and so forth and it's and and so it's all about her wanting to inhabit that fully and and sort of like in even in prison she's in prison for the last 45 minutes or so but it's and she's still mm-hmm. wearing all of that so and and like and so it's and the the image for of Uper just in that just luxuriating in the sort of um even even though like she she seems to prostitute herself much like a, a great deal in this film and like sometimes is not in the most elegant of posi- uh positions she always seems to carry that partly be- like largely because just her presence her presence as Uper, even so young is just already so fervently apparent that it gives the film like i i think that i i agree that's definitely not as gleeful and as uh you know as exuberant in its uh in its sort of mm-hmm. darkness as as uh his as his more successful films but i think that there is that sort of i think it finds it in Rupert's presence in the way that her like cold her cold fury contrasts with Adran's mm-hmm. hot fury if you can yeah. put it that way i mean uh, i do wonder the extent to which this would have played as a more interesting movie had we not had like three or four decades of, of who pair performances since like, you know, I, I just feel very accustomed to this kind of who pair thing where she is, is cold and impenetrable. And, you know, I do wonder if you had seen it at the time, like, does it play like a much more mysterious movie about why this girl does this? Because like the movie doesn't really posit any particular reason that she decides to murder her family. Like she remains opaque Mm -hmm. and her motivations remain unclear. And I don't know. I just have, I've seen a lot of, of who performances like that. And the ones that are most interesting are when the filmmaker is like intersecting, the Hooper performance with like some other material that the Hooper character like can't control. Like the, the archetypal mm. archetypal example is uh, like L for me, like, you know, which is very mm. much a Chabrolian movie. And it's like that whole movie is about the contrast between like Hooper's like sense of, of control and the kind of like narrative rugs that are continually pulled out from under her. Mm. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what this, movie lacks in a sense it's just sort of like the pure like petite bourgeois critique that chabrol is very comfortable with without any of the like frankly cheaper like narrative instincts that are more fun in his in his other works and that actually because they're kind of a little tawdry and cheap actually sharpen the critique and and kind of give it a a, a double edge whereas this just seems like it, it seems pretty clearly directed at the at the Adron character for being and, and I mean her husband to an extent too um, for being mm. basically just kind of like small minded bores and mm. you know like yeah. uh, agreed 
but I don't know. It, it just, mm-hmm. I, I just kept waiting for it to kind of turn to a place where um, there was going to be that kind of intersection where Chabrol's perspective was going to impede on the movie uh, and suddenly kind of flip uh, the the telescope around a little bit, but it, it never really does that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, like it's sort of, it's like throughout, it's sort of relies on this strange flashback sort of, also maybe dream sequence sort of structure in which you in in which like it's not revealed exactly. Like it, uh, much of it seems to be like a flashback from right after she's or like right after she's uh, poisoned her parents, like just her in the street and then it cuts back and then sometimes like it, it reveals like her actual perspective later on in a and and later on increasingly as she is uh she alleges that her father was uh, was molesting her like there are these sort of less like these random fl- not fl- random but like like um interspersed flashbacks to her uh to her childhood and it's, it's not necessarily related to the to to molestation or anything like that but it's just like her like living in the countryside and just her interactions with the parents and in this in this way that that I don't know if it necessarily goes as far as that but I think it it's sort of his way of disrupting though I don't know if that's I don't think that's necessarily uh, something that he did frequently that kind of flashback type structure no I mean the yeah. structure of the film yeah. is is uh, quite unlike Anisha Broles that I can think of off the top of my head and it mm-hmm. is an unusual approach to the film because, like, it's kind of halting in a way. Like, it doesn't really give you mm-hmm. clear signifier. I mean, it's not like it's confusing, but it doesn't really give you clear signifiers of, like, when the flashback is occurring or not. And I think it takes a little mm-hmm. bit of time in mm-hmm. the film to understand that you're moving back and forward through time. Um, and again, I think that's just about establishing the, the basic impenetrability of the Huppert character, which, right. agreed, like, she is very impenetrable and Huppert is excellent at playing that. I just, at this point, I don't know. I just, it's a little played out, which isn't the movie's fault per se, but hard to get around after, like I said, three decades mm-hmm. of subsequent Huppert performances. She is very good here. I, you know, like she almost mm-hmm. always is, but it's in her wheelhouse. Yeah. And there are points, there are moments which just like crystallize or, or just like, just throw in, like a detail which which through which lends itself to the sort of perversity that I that Chabrol seems at most at home with like this scene where she's speaking as if she's speaking to her lover who's hilariously named Jean Deban and uh and like she's speaking into the mirror and she starts kissing the mirror and also like a scene where she showers in like a public shower with her all her clothes on and it's yeah like it's it's just like moments little moments little mm. granular moments that suddenly snap everything into place may like the maybe the films the film's probably too uh too historically minded to really go much further than that but i think that there's still just the, the general assurance of chabrol and especially Uber, yeah Uber, i mean the film Uber, is yeah. as is usually the case with chabrol just like really sharply directed on a scene by scene basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and even from the opening shot, I mean, the opening, I hadn't seen a Chabrol movie in a little while and the opening shot, which is like this like slinky camera move, like kind of zooming in through the, the gate of, um, the mm-hmm. like housing complex in which they live. I was like, 
you know, okay, I'm ready. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm back in, in Chabrol land. And, and the movie, you know, like I said, on a scene by scene basis, like it delivers lots of, of charged moments. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that the, the, the fractured approach to her character has limits in Chabrol's hands absent some of the other things that he can play with. And so, mm-hmm. uh, I just, you know, I would prefer that this have a little bit more, uh, ridiculous, pulpy violence, I guess <laughs> is really what I'm saying. Uh, and instead it's pretty stayed, yeah. but yeah, that's the limits of working with a poisoner, not a, <laughs> not an ax murderer. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's right. I mean, that's a good point, you know, <laughs> Le Boucher is just a little well suited, a little better suited to, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. So that concludes the 1978 festival, uh, where it, it's sort of, it's just to give the listener a sense of the strangeness. It's just so strange talking at length about these films in these particular times. Like, like I didn't necessarily mention them all that much, which is like thinking about little moments that seem to intersect with the general state of being in which we're all living in. So maybe that, showed up maybe that didn't show up that much but it's sort of un- unavoidable at least in my mind but uh yeah like I, I think we pretty much we pretty well established our sort of uh wariness with the general with most of the films in this slate uh would you agree with that i'm never watching miracle of the walls at completion so yes i would agree with that <laughs> <laughs> yes that's 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 totally fair um but yeah, I, I, I think I, I hope that this still provided a good deal of uh, of interest. And I think that that for a bunch of these films, even though the holes are maybe not especially interesting, I think that there are elements that that do work quite well. And I think that can be said for a good number of them. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say more than. I wouldn't say a, a vast majority. But I mean, we got to like talk about uh, Stevenon for like twenty-five minutes in depth, so <laughs> I'll yes. take I'll take yes. uh, um, you know having to to wade through uh, some rather more mediocre uh, films to uh, pontificate on Stevenon for a bit. So yes, absolutely, and I, in in some sense, I think that's what <laughs> what gives uh, what what gives Nif such a strange strange, but uh, but interesting value uh, certainly to me um th- yeah thank you 
thank you very much uh, to listener for for once again joining us on this uh, journey, and 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 all sincerity, uh, th- these most certainly are uh, like uh, these most certainly are among the most uncertain times that any of us have lived through, and I to all um, and we send all of our love to the protesters to those those stridently advocating for for the for 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 justice for the for equality for the ability to tear down the structures that have existed for uh that have existed for so so long and which are far past due for their time at uh for for their time to be dismantled and uh, yeah, I do sincerely hope, and I know that many, that a good number of the listeners to this are are hard at work, are on the streets. I do wish you all to please stay safe and please, um, please continue, keep up the fight, keep up the strength, and we are, we all support you. Uh, I feel it might be strange in the context of such a, historically minded so like such a festival is situated in the past but i think that's absolutely vital to note at, at this particular time thank you evan very much for joining me once more and thanks for having I me hope that yeah and i hope i hope that this uh that some of the other some of the various films have not dissuaded you from <laughs> appearing again on the on the show in the future i'll come back uh you know give me call me back when there's a Ruiz film or or something like that uh I, I most certainly will, uh, and yeah, I'd, and yeah. Thank, thank you, uh, thank you, Evan. Thank you to the listener, and please, everyone, uh, stay safe, and and I look forward to talking again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.